Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, live from Montreal, Canada. Very excited. Great time here in our spare time. We did eight podcasts that we're going to be bringing to you that you're going to really, really enjoy. And I'm very, very happy about that. But I'm most happy about the fact that all of you have been so incredibly supportive of the show with your correspondence. And it's been unbelievably humbling And I'm really, really, really appreciative. I'm also appreciative that a lot of you go to the website barrycats.com slash podcast and click on the Amazon banner and order supplies and goods and things that you want from Amazon by clicking through that banner. And it doesn't cost you any extra money, but you know that it benefits my son's college educational fund. It's a way that you've really come through to support me for what we're doing on the show here and it doesn't cost you anything I'm very very grateful for that as well but most importantly I think I'm most excited about the fact that we've been doing this for two years after starting as they say with a dollar and a dream and all these millions and millions of downloads later we've been able to sustain and keep going and keep delivering a product that hopefully you all feel is worthy of your attention. That's something to me that I'm very, very proud of. I go into these interviews each time and I I prepare as much as I possibly can 
and I try to be with the guest in a way that I'd want to be with them if it were reversed and they were interviewing me and every time I, I just hope and pray that they feel comfortable and they feel like they're able to give them themselves because I know if they do it's going to be something that will help millions and millions of people and inspire millions and millions of people to get to the places that they want to go professionally as well as personally. And so I feel on this time after doing this many podcasts that it would be only fitting to do a show that is titled in a way that I tend to use uh, a phrase over and over again in my life. And I thought to myself, well, why not be in a situation where we can give these kind of situations the proper due and the proper respect and the proper introductions and compile them all together and give them to you on a silver platter. So in honor of our second anniversary, I'm going to give you a show that I'd like to entitle Holy Shit Moments a plethora of my guests over the past two years and what I consider to be some of the greatest holy shit moments of all time. So without further ado, I'm going to start with one of my own. And I'm going to give you one that you've never heard before. And for those of you who don't know, I started doing comedy in Boston, Massachusetts at a place called Play It Again Sam's. A really, really amazing place that had a movie bar upstairs. This is before DVD. So all the movies that go to DVD or to go to HBO or go to Netflix or wherever it is where they go on their first run, where they would go in Boston was at a place called Play It Again Sam's upstairs in the movie bar and he would serve and I say he and the owner Tom Maloney would serve drinks great onion rings all sorts of food and burgers all sorts of great original unique beers from around the world and he'd have couches and chairs in there and kids would come in and watch these movies but occasionally they'd have Richard Pryor film festivals and Mad Max and all kinds of things, but then occasionally they'd have movies that would just come off the theaters. And you would go in there and you would see these movies. Then there was a restaurant also next door to that, where if you just didn't want to go see the movies, you could eat. And next to that was a little bar pub where a man named Larry Tomei used to play folk songs up in the corner under the television. I don't know how he fit up there, but he did. And he drew quite a crowd and really had people singing and going crazy. And downstairs was the comedy club. And I was fortunate enough through a lot of open mic nights in Boston to be seen by a comedian named Chance Langton, who uh, was a great comedian in Boston. I'll never forget, he played guitar as well. He'd be the kind of guy who'd sing a serenade to girls and he'd take a song and he'd just switch one word or two words and he'd get them laughing hysterically. Like he'd look to a group of girls and he'd start singing, All I am saying 
is give chance a piece instead of give peace a chance and so many other great jokes and material and things and he became a real real uh written word and spoken word comedian over time and evolved into one of the most strongest unique and special voices in boston um and if there was a hall of fame for boston comedians he would definitely be in it. And he was my mentor. And he saw me do an open mic night at the Comedy Connection at the Charles Playhouse, and he decided to hire me as his doorman. And in exchange for paying me $10 a night to work about six hours working the door and taking money, thousands of dollars on Friday and Saturdays, he would give me five minutes at the end of the night after all these great headliners like Lenny Clark and Don Gavin and Steve Sweeney and Stephen Wright. And at five minutes or two, I would get my shot to go on and do my material, which was very, very difficult going on after four headliners. I remember my first line was something like, I know what you're saying, the doorman. This guy's going to suck. Kind of self-effacing. But it was a great gig. I learned a lot. And one of the strange things I also learned was know who your friends are. Know what money gets you. Know when somebody writes a check that they own you. And Chance Langton went away one weekend and asked me to take over the door and run the club and manage the club while he was away, which I did. And he had a contemptuous relationship with the owner, Tom Maloney. And I was faced with a situation that I'd never been faced with before. So the weekend ended. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And Tom Maloney comes up to me and says, Give me the money that you made at the door this Friday and Saturday night. And it was all cash. And I said, Tom, I can't give you the money because I'm working for Chance. And he told me to collect the money and give it to him. But Tom wasn't having that answer. He said, give me the money. This is my establishment. This is my room. He owes me money. Give me the money. I said, Tom, I, I can't do that. I work for Chance. And if there was any situation where he actually did owe you money, I'm sure you would have reached me before the weekend started and reached him. And we would have had some kind of understanding. Well, you know, he doesn't really understand what's going on or know what's going on. And he doesn't really think that he owes me money. I said, well, do you have a written contract? He said, no. I said, well, do you have a verbal contract that says that he owes you money? No. I said, well, why do you think he owes you money? Because he's been doing really, really well down here. He's making a lot of money. He's making more money than me. And I deserve some of that money. Give me the money. Give me the fucking money. I said, I'm not giving you the money. I don't work for you. And I haven't worked for you. And I'm not going to be intimidated by you. I work for Chance Langdon. And I'll be giving him the money. And he walked off in a huff. I got all my stuff together. I made the room presentable and back to the way it was when I left it. I locked up like I was supposed to lock up on either side. 
I tipped out the waitresses and bartender, which I always did regardless of what Chance really wanted me to do. I told him I wasn't going to do it unless I was allowed to tip out the bartenders and waitresses because they were the people that always drove home the point that they wanted you there. You took care of them. They would always want you there and always want you to be around and always want you to to come back over and over again. And they would always praise you in the future. And that's one thing I impress to every artist who performs. Always over-tip your waitresses and bartenders. They're the first ones. They're the ground floor. They're the ones talking to the owners, the managers, the booking agents, telling them how fantastic you are and how much they should bring you back. So I walk upstairs. It's the dead of winter. There's snow on the ground. It's freezing. And as I walk outside, I hear, that's him, officers. And it's Tom Maloney saying that outside. I look around. There's two officers. And they take me. And they handcuff me without asking me any questions first. And then they start asking me questions about the money. Whose money is it? And I tell them the story. And I notice in the background that they have their police cruiser with the lights flashing, blocking off the street. It's a little side street that goes in front of 1314 Commonwealth Avenue, which is now some kind of alehouse in between Boston University and Boston College. And he's next to me, and he's telling them how I've stolen his money. The police officers finally tell him to go inside. And the police officers tell me to tell them my side of the story, which I do. And I give an impassioned speech about how I was hired to work for a person named Chance Langton. I showed them a copy of the facts that Chance sent me, a handwritten facts of the directions of what he needed me to do, signed with his name on it. And I was able to let them know how important it was for me to do a great job and to be loyal to the person who hired me and to give the best effort I could and be able to protect the money that they told me to protect for them. And again, I was working for probably $10 a night, and I probably had over $2,000 in my pocket. I never knew I was going to go through this, but it happened. And as I pleaded my case and finished telling them everything that I needed to tell them, they looked at me, they shrugged their shoulders, and they grabbed me by the arm, and we turned around. And in the distance, they looked as they were walking. And I think I noticed before them, their police cruiser was gone. Somebody from the neighborhood, or some drunk patron from Played Against Sam's, had gotten inside the car and driven off with their police car. They started running towards where the police car was. And I said, hey, hey, can you guys unlock me? And they stopped, turned around, ran back towards me, unlocked my handcuffs, took them off, held onto them tight, looked at me, didn't say a word, turned back and ran off into the dark night to try to find their police car. And I always remember this night because about six months later, 
or a year later after doing dedicated service for Chance Langton at the door, I was getting um, a little tired of working for a limited amount of money, and even though Chance had given me a few different raises, his relationship with the owner was getting more and more contemptuous. And the owner went to him and told him that he wasn't going to extend his agreement at the club. And the owner came to me and asked me if I would like to run the comedy club, if I would like to take over. And he would give me a salary every week. And eventually, with the understanding that I would take over and book the room and take the door at the club and run it in a way that he'd be proud of, where he felt he could make the maximum amount of money, and he felt he could be with somebody who was as loyal to him as I was to Chance Langton. So I called Chance, and I set up a meeting with him, and I told him what I was being offered, and Chance was an amazing guy. He said, Barry, look, I don't like being fired from the club. I don't like losing that money, but if there's anybody who's going to come in and do a great job, and anyone who's probably going to take care of me more than anybody else in that club, it's going to be you. So even though I don't like being fired, I know the owner's never going to rehire me, but I know you will, and I know how you feel about me. So take the job and do a great job. And so there I was, an owner of an establishment that had me in handcuffs, yelling at me, swearing at me, calling the police, telling them that I stole money from him. Six months later, saw my fierce loyalty to Chance Langton and said to himself, you know what, that's the kind of person that I want working with me. That's the kind of person I can trust. And hence the start of my comedy career in a big way where I was being given the first chance pardon the expression, to show myself as a young man still in college that I could be a leader of men and women and I could balance between the artist and the owner. That I could go into situations of conflict and come out and make both sides happy. And my lesson to all of you here is that you can never get hurt being loyal, you can never be hurt having integrity, and you can never be hurt working hard, you can never be hurt taking a job that doesn't pay a lot of money in the beginning, but helps you get to where you need to go, and you can never ever be hurt by being true to yourself and what you believe in, because the people around you will see it. The circle around those people will see it. And eventually the world will see it. And you'll be in a position to rise to the top of your profession and to get to a place that you've always wanted to go. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, 
or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today, our second year anniversary live from Montreal. Holy shit moments of the greatest people in our business. And I've done over 100 podcasts, and there's no way I can give you all of the greatest holy shit moments. And I'll probably be giving you more later at some point in time. But for right now, I handpicked all of these for you, and I know you're going to enjoy them a lot. So without further ado, I think what better way to start with a man who has given advice to millions and has been at the top of his game for a long time. A guy who started as a psychologist in Texas, eventually founding Courtroom Science, Inc., consult attorneys before jury trials, which led him to consult for Oprah Winfrey in her famous case about the cow and meat industry in Amarillo, Texas, who later made him a regular guest on her show and who later got his own show, which he's hosted for probably 13 or 14 years now, garnering 26 Emmy nominations and probably being the number one daytime talk show of the last 12 or 14 years. And I'm talking about Dr. Phil. Oprah got sued um, by the beef industry, some representatives of the, of the cattle and beef industry, um, in what came to be known as the mad cow case, the mad cow disease. And um, she was sued up in Amarillo, Texas, which is cattle country. So here you've got um, this billionaire woman uh, sued behind enemy lines for disparaging beef. And um, so uh, I was retained uh, as part of that defense team. But a lot of people in Amarillo loved Oprah. 
but a lot of people up there were impacted by the cattle industry, obviously. Um, I thought it was a bogus but dangerous lawsuit from the beginning. And, I, you know, I worked with Oprah for a couple of years leading up to trial um, because we conducted mock trials, focus group research. We did all kinds of jury profiling. Um, and we were always present at trial as well. And, in fact, in that case, uh, myself and lead counsel Chip Babcock, who's the premier First Amendment lawyer in the country, uh, the two of us plus Oprah and uh, a few of her key people all lived in a bed and breakfast out on the edge of Amarillo for a couple of months out there. So, I mean, it was a dangerous case. And uh, although I thought it was a, a frivolous case, it was still a dangerous case. But uh, Oprah, you know, I believe the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And that's that's true of her. She um, once she said, you know, she asked me what I thought about the case from a jury standpoint. And I said, I, I think you can win it, but it's dangerous. And she said, I've got some lawyers telling me I should settle. Certainly not Chip Babcock, but some other lawyers telling her she should settle. She said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think the line at the Sue Oprah window is going to get a whole lot shorter if you stand up and say, bullshit. I'm not paying extortion money. I didn't do anything wrong here, and I'm not paying you a dime. And you, you fight these people to verdict, and and we did, and won. And the line at the Sue Oprah window got a lot shorter. I mean, people realized, you know, you, you're not going to get nuisance money uh, out of her. I think she did exactly the right thing. We got to know each other really well because, as I say, I worked with her for two years before the trial, then during the trial. Um, and, you know, she said the night the verdict came, the day the verdict came in, we did a show that night from Amarillo that aired the next day. And um, that was the first time I was ever on the Oprah show, and it had nothing to do with anything other than the Had trial. you ever been on television on any kind of a no. show like that before? No. So your first time on television, and it's the day before the trial. Verdict so came in, and we went and did a show. After the verdict. After the verdict. And were you, I ask you this because I, I don't picture this as being a quality that you have, but were you anxious? No, not in the least. It, it was irrelevant to me. I mean, being on some daytime television show, how irrelevant was that? To, I mean, I, I worked all day. I, I hadn't, I had never seen a episode of Oprah from start to finish in my life. I mean, I knew who she was. And then when I met her, I fastly understood why America was in love with her. She's charming and charismatic and intelligent and funny and all of those things. But you but, know what's interesting? When she met you, she saw a mirror because that's what you are. Well, she, you know, she has a, a way of seeing things and, and creating things. And, I, you know, that first night I was on her show, I mean, it was one of the kindest things anybody's ever said to me. She was introducing Chip, the lawyer, and this one, that one. And, and then she said, now I want to introduce you to Dr. Phil McGraw. This is the man that gave myself back to me because I lost myself in this process. And he gave myself back to me. Wow. Which was a very kind thing to say. And then 
you know, the first time she had me on the show as a guest after that, she said, you know, I've always told you, promised you that if I found things that I thought were helpful and valuable, whether it was a pair of shoes or a book or a whatever, I, I would share it with you. And I I found him and I want to share him with you because at a real low spot in my life, um, he had the strength to stand up and tell me how it was when I needed to hear it. And I want him to tell you how it is, just like he told me. So a, a producer called from the show and said, Oprah wanted me to call you. We're doing a show about such and such, and she wants you to come be the, the expert, the guest on the show. And um, I, the producer called and said that, and told me when it was, and I said, look, I really appreciate it, um, but I can't do it. I'm going scuba diving, <laughs> and but I can give you the name of somebody that I think would do a really good job and and just you know let them do it. And she kind of was real silent and said, well, okay. <laughs> um, and then... And then uh, a little bit later, the phone rings again, and it's Oprah. She says, you, you don't say no. What, you know, what, are you, what are you doing? I said, I'm going scuba diving. She said, well, how about we wait till you get back? And I said, okay, we'll do that. And, and um, she was very gracious, and I came back and went and did the show. And um, it certainly made waves. Um, it certainly made waves. Some people loved it, and some people were outraged by it. It was like, well, they. Our very first guest was a stripper. It was a stripper, uh -huh. and it was a very nice girl, but she was a stripper, and she had written in this letter, this long letter about I want to change my life, and I want to show women to have self-respect and stand up for themselves and, you know, be what God made them to be and blah, 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 and all of that. And I remember at the end of reading the letter, uh, a lot of the audience was crying and clapping and all of that. And Oprah said, well, so what do you think? And I said, well, I tell you what, before you save the world, how about we just get you a job where you keep your clothes on? <laughs> you know, let's just do, let's take this a step at a time. Before you save womankind, let's just see if we can get a job where you keep your pants on. And everybody's like, holy shit, what did he just say? I mean, uh, um, I mean, that was just what I was thinking. I was just like, you know, if you really want to do this, don't set yourself up for failure here. You're setting up all these lofty goals. That isn't going to work. Be honest with yourself. Take care of you first. Then we'll go on. And I wasn't trying to be unkind. That was just that was just the truth of it, right? Um, and so people were like shocked. And so I come back for my second show, and the producers have told me, wow, boy, did, did you make waves? I mean, that was great. I mean, you made sparks. People are talking about it. But some people were really offended at your candor. And... So I saw Oprah before the show, and I said, well, I understand a lot of people were really offended by my candor. What do you think? She said, turn up the heat. My next guest started doing stand-up in Minneapolis, and he wrote for Larry Sanders and was the head writer for Queen Latifah show and executive producer Russell Brand's Brand X on FX.
but the story that he's about to tell here involves his time at one of the greatest shows that I remember on television, Dennis Miller Live. This little story about his experiences with Brad Gray from Brillstein Gray Management Company and Jeff Fuchs and Bridget Potter from HBO. I'm talking about Jeff Cesario. Oftentimes you don't get second third chances in this business you know so dennis had this talk show pop and everybody was like geez what's dennis going to do now you know how do they construct something around dennis to make it work so brad went to hbo went to michael fuchs at the time at hbo great executive real vision and a real champion of comedy and michael fuchs said look i like when he rants i like when he does a stand-up and he gets off on these rants build something around that and maybe we'll take a pop we'll do like six half hours and see what happens so Brad goes back to Dennis, and Dennis says, you know, he goes back to Dennis and says, this is the deal if you want to take it. So Danny goes, all right, I'll give it a shot. You know, and then he goes, but if it's HBO, I, I want, I, I would like Jeff to produce. Let me call Jeff. So he calls me, and, and I'm just doing the clubs and everything. So he says, uh, Jeff, bro, would you be interested in producing, executive producing my show? And I go, well, hell yeah. I mean, you know, I was just working the clubs. I'd had one or two pilots and things that hadn't quite gotten me traction. And, I th- and I'd always been interested in that side of the camera because I'd always wanted to write movies and television and maybe be in them. But I, I, I liked that side of the camera as well. So Danny goes, do you want to do it? And I said, yeah, sure. So I meet with Brad. Brad goes, well, okay, let me take it to HBO. I'm just a comic. I have zero behind the camera experience. And I'm essentially the executive producer of a show that could be Dennis's last shot <laughs> at TV. We didn't have the the racing fuel mix right yet. We had too much seriousness and seriousness and not enough comedy in the first episode. And uh, Dennis came to me after the episode. And he said, "Jeff, we got to get some jokes in there." So we we had uh, we retooled for the second episode. And I said, "I got to get a guest, no matter what." So I called his brother Jimmy Miller, who was just beginning, and I go, "Jim." Um, we got to try to get Jim Carrey on this. And he goes, well, he's shooting Dumb and Dumber. We have, I go to Kevin and I go, Kevin Slattery, my, my co-EP, and I go, can we get a, can we get a satellite truck, a, a truck up to Aspen? He goes, yeah, you know, if it blizzards, we're fucked, but we can try. We get the satellite trike that has to drive from Denver to Aspen in a blizzard. It gets there an hour and a half before the show. We're live. We are Dennis Miller live. We are live on air. The satellite truck barely gets there. You know, I got a control booth crew that's already on edge because it's Dennis, you know, who's a tad prickly to work with. So I'm trying to calm everybody down, hose everybody off. And Dennis is like, man, you know, I think we got great jokes. But like anybody in that situation, at some point during that week, whatever gig it is, whether it was Larry Sanders, whether it was Dennis, whether it's Billy Crystal, whoever it is, they're flying the jet. You lock down the cockpit, lock the door from from five days out. Anything they do, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. That's the funniest shit I've ever, because they're flying the fucking plane. (laughs) So Dennis is in the cockpit, and I'm like, Danny, you're fucking roasting this material. It's killing. So I'm trying to keep him like together. (laughs) Meanwhile, we finally get like this through this through the actual TV snow and the snow. We go to Jim Carrey live via satellite, box in box. (laughs) He's just sitting there with that dumb fucking haircut. And, and he starts to talk, and he is laying this rope out like you wouldn't believe. Dennis, I think it's so important to stay humble, 
to understand your roots, where you're from. Sure, things seem good for me now. I had a hit movie. But, you know, a lot's going to depend on this movie. And, and um, you know, my throat's a little parched. Can I get a little water, please? He's selling the shit out of this. And this kid, I don't know who the kid was. I don't even know who the kid He brings in water. And I said, make sure it's on, like, a tray, just so what Jim wants to do. So he brings it out on a tray, just a glass of water on a tray. And Jim is sitting just like us. I still to this day have no idea how he did it. He's like this, and he goes, you call that water? Something like that. And he flies. He flies up. It's like a karate move. He kicks it out of the kid's hands, and he winds up in a standing position. I have I have some news shooter from Denver who's smart enough to zoom out to get the whole thing, and he goes off on this kid for like three fucking minutes. And it's and he's he's like standing over the kid nailing him, and then he sits down and he goes anyway where were we like fame, fame should not and he just goes right back into it and I'm like oh my god I'm the luckiest guy in the fucking world, and I mean in a span of six weeks, I went from this guy he's a comic he can't handle shit get somebody to please get a team of whatever God Almighty help us to. You're the guy who can handle tough comedic talent. We're going to do a show <laughs> with Chris Rock. You're the EP we need. And you got to vary six weeks. <laughs> My next guest is a guy who has made his mark as probably the godfather of podcasting and a tremendous stand-up comedian who also executive produces and stars on his own show on the IFC Network. A guy who created the greatest holy shit moment in podcast history when he interviewed Barack Obama inside his own home in his garage. Not Barack Obama's garage. This person's garage. This is a guy who cut his teeth at the comedy store and the story that he's about to tell involves the late, great Sam Kinison. And will blow you away. Please welcome Mark Marin. The, the comedy store, there, there's an evil that lives there. And you're not sure what it is. It's ill-defined. To set up what happened up there, you know, I was out of my mind. I was losing my mind on coke. I was sleep-deprived. And I was very much on the Sam, you know, trip. But the, the thing about satellite comics is that you think that they're going to take you with you. They think You think that they're going to take, you know, help your career. They are not. Is that, you know, if you start in, you know, because Sam used to do that, like, Marin, I'm going to save you some time. And then in retrospect, I'm like, what, by killing me? Because, you know, they're not, you know, if you get lost in someone else's dream, to find your own becomes impossible. So ultimately what happens is there's this Satanist that hangs out at the store there. It was very annoying. Uh, his name was Dave. He was a junkie. He looked like, you know, Christopher Walken. And he, you know, he was a Satanist, whatever the hell that means. So like he had a pentagram tattooed on his heart. He had some other tattoos, but you know, he was annoying and he used to hang around. The store attracts a very quality crew. So, so Sam hated this guy for whatever reason, because Sam was his own practicing his own version of Satanism, whatever that was. You call yourself the beast. You know, you got to assume that, you know, he believed it on some level. So what happens is one night, you know, we I set up the house. We have the party and the Satanist shows up and he was a fairly harmless guy other than he was annoying. Satan apparently doesn't pick you know great people to follow him. But so the Satanist is there and Sam's there and in the middle of everything. You know, the Satanist, 
who's not supposed to be there, you know, says to Sam, like, you know, you're not a real Satanist. I'm going to tell Anton LaVey about you. Who cares? Whatever. This is complicated. So Sam, like, gets up and he throws a drink in the guy's face and punches him. And, you know, it's, there's chaos. Now, the guy won't leave. And I'm like, oh, Christ. You know, and, and it's my house. So in my bedroom was a bunch of musical equipment that Sam had left at the house because we had a jam session. So basically what I do, for reasons I don't quite understand, is I tell Dave, I go, well, just go in my room. I'm going to lock you in there and just stay out of his face. So I lock Dave in my room with all of Sam's musical equipment. And then I got to go because I got to pick up my friend who's coming in from Boston, right? My friend Bill. And I told him about how great everything was in L.A. and how fun it was, right? So... So I go pick Bill up and I'm like, I don't want to go back to the house. You know, I'm just going to sweep in Bill's hotel room. So I swept in Bill's hotel room. And then the next morning at like 1030, 11 in the morning, I go back. And now like, you know, there used to, there was 20 people when I left. And now there's like three people. And I don't even want to mention names because one of the people was there. That was a life changing moment for her. And she changed, you know, like she, she had never been there before. And she was like, that's it. Whatever the hell is going on. All right. But so it's like three people. It's like Sam and Carl and her. And, and I walk in with Bill. So we walk in and, and it's still going on. Whatever. This is what's left of what happened the night before. And, you know, like I look in, in my room, you know, first I show Bill my room, but the door had been kicked down and all the musical equipment was gone. And I, you know, the bed was whatever. And I walk in with Bill and Sam just sitting there, you know, at the, uh, with just the leftovers of a night of debauchery. And I'm standing there with Bill, and Sam goes, Marin, I pissed on your bed. You want to know why? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, because you let that asshole sleep in there with my guitars. And then I turned to Bill, and I said, I told you I knew him. (laughs) (laughs) But I never slept in the bed again. And I didn't know that. I said that until Carl LeBeau reminded me. But but ultimately... You know, that, I, that's where you lost your innocence. Well, that whole period. But see, the thing was, is that I had to regain my innocence because what happened after that between Kennison and, the, you know, the influence of Hicks and that I became like I thought I became bitter. I became angry. I, you know, I became, you know, driven by, you know, provoking an audience, challenging an audience. And I don't think it was my nature because I'm I'm now back to my nature. Like the nature that you saw when I was younger was a fairly sensitive, intelligent, neurotic guy and, you know, angry, but not but not like that. So I sort of became this angry comic for years and, and really insisted on it working. And, it, you know, it just it, you know, I did OK. You know, I was able to sustain a, sh- sh- a career in show business one way or the other, but I was never able to really get much traction. And it wasn't until. You know, I started doing the podcast until I lost everything and I had no real prospects that, you know, I was humbled to the degree where I was able to get back to, you know, who I really was or, or maybe to get there for the first time. My next guest is one of the greatest stand-up comedians of my generation and a great actor as well. A huge peer of Seinfeld, Larry David, Bill Maher, and Carol Liefer. He gained fame and attention doing comedy in the 80s where he opened for Frank Sinatra and appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He's had notable roles in such movies as Ten Things I Hate About You, appeared in Law and Order, Seinfeld, Eight Simple Rules, and probably his most memorable role as a shop clerk interacting with Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. This little story about his first appearance on The Tonight Show 
Tom, his agent, and the booker of the show, legendary Jim McCauley. Please welcome Larry Miller. I love getting places early. I love being early. Which is very, very important, everybody. If you can get there early for everything. Everything. And just to be there and to walk out onto the bare stage, of course, long before the band gets there and long before anyone else is in there, and see a couple of the folks like Ed McMahon would see you just walking out to the spot you're going to be on and just just pacing it out, looking at where the curtains are and not in a crazy way, but just enjoying it, loving it. And then seeing, looking at the desk going, how do you like this? And then going around backstage and knowing where everything is backstage, you can go to the refrigerator and get a soda. And and I uh, then the show taped in those, I think it was at 5.15. And uh, so at about 4.30, I went back into the dressing room there. And, uh, and Tom was there. And I, and I said, I think it's time to put on some Tonight Show clothes and my fancy new stuff. And he said, all right. And I, as I said, I'd hung it up and I... Uh, uh, took it out, and the suit was in a a plastic uh, bag that they a black bag that they had uh, put it in, and I took it out, and there were no pants. First time I'm wearing it on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, no pants, <laughs> and I just lo- looked at it, and, I, and my mouth kind of moved a little. And Tom said, "Is something wrong?" And I said, "No pants," <laughs> and he said, "What?" I said, "There are no pants," and he looked at it, and he. You know, he's kind of freaked. What? What? No pants. There are no pants. What are we going to do? And I said, wait a minute. And they had the phone. I used the phone in the dressing room to call the store. And I did. And I got the salesman on the line. And he said, wait a minute. Let me take a look. And he came back to the phone and said, you know, you're right. We didn't put the pants in the bag. And, you know, you want to crawl through the phone and strangle someone. But I did. Of course, it didn't. I said, what? He said, don't worry. Uh, we'll send them over right now. They'll be there in plenty of time. Now, I don't know if you know, Beverly Hills to Burbank <laughs> in the middle of the night by missile <laughs> is still 20 minutes. In rush hour, two hours, three, five, nine hours, it doesn't matter. It's it's not thinkable. And I just said, all right, all right, all right because I, there's no there's no way. Tom ran out of the dressing room to get... Jim McCauley, and he ran into, and this was the dressing room at the end, one end of things, where there was a, a wall, a concrete wall, and he ran into that and got a lump on his forehead. I mean, he ran in at about 15 miles an hour, <laughs> like agent running, just went, oh, I gotta, gotta, gotta get Jim, went, whammo, and I mean, you heard it. People in South America must have gone, ooh, what was that? And then Jim McCauley came in, and Tom was there, a little dizzy from the lump. And it was, was still growing. He really walloped himself. And and Jim said, all right. Uh, he said, you know what? Let me get, uh, oh, Jennifer, I'm sorry. I can't remember her name. Who's the wardrobe woman there at the Tonight Show? And uh, I'll tell her what it is. And they uh, she brought in a pair of, of black pants that, could be suit pants that could have gone with the with the Armani jacket. Unfortunately, the pants had last been worn by William Conrad <laughs> or someone <laughs> that size, and they were they were very big. Uh, at any rate, so Tom, Tom, Jim McCauley comes in. The pants are there, and they're just they're immense. 
And uh, she said, the wardrobe woman said, don't worry, we'll pinch them in the back to where they fit, and then it'll just come out in the back. But that's a big pinch. I mean, they that's immense. There was, a, you know, two feet of <laughs> pinch material there. And so I, I, I just took them over and said, thank you very much. And I said to Jim, now the show has started, meaning the Tonight Show. Da, 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 da. You know, it's a show, and it's and it's right there. Meaning, like, here's the dressing room. Through those doors, that's the Tonight Show. I'm supposed to be on with clothes. And so I just said, I just said, I, I, don't, I you know, don't know what this do. And uh, Tom said, maybe it'll get here in time with the, because uh, I said to Jim, this is, this is this is like comedy pants, but not good comedy. <laughs> and he said, "Well, you got to you've, you've got to wear something." And he, God bless me, he was starting to get a little edgy now, also, because <laughs> the show's on. <laughs> uh, Jim just said, "Maybe the other ones will get here." I thought, That's not going to happen. And uh, so we took the pants off my hand. I walked out in my underwear, which I don't care about anyway. It's just again, you're wearing your shoes. And, and you know what? So we walked out down the hallway. And uh, past the makeup room, out to the uh, stage area, the behind you behind the stage there, and uh, they out to behind the curtain. So the first guest is on now, and and just you know, uh, and there's a guy behind the curtain who's going to send you out there. He pulls the curtain back, and he's going to send you out there. Meaning, you're going out there. <laughs> His job is not to listen to what's happening. He's gonna. He puts his his hand on your shoulder, which is on your back, sort of. And he's he's used it before. He's good at his job, meaning when your name is announced, he's he's going to pull that curtain with one hand, and you're going out there. <laughs> now, you may sit down and suck your thumb in the middle of the floor if that's what you want to do, but the fault won't be his. So I know this, so I'm standing there, and, and Jim takes the pants from me, and I said, I can't. And Tom says... <laughs> And then this thing is now... And you're in your box. And I'm in my boxer shorts. <laughs> and you're in your agent as a whole, a big bump. Of <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 like another person, that bump now. <laughs> and so he says, you know what? I'll go outside to the to the entrance there, to the to, near the parking lot, and I'll wait. <laughs> so when they get here with the pants, I can take the pants and bring them back here. And... Even Jim, even the guy behind the curtain just went, you know, kind of, just kind of rolled his eyes because that's not going to happen. So Tom does an agent's jog out down the hallway and leaves the studio to go there. And I said, holy mackerel. And then, you know, it's time for my segment. And I'm standing there in my underwear still. And Jim says, Larry, you better put the pants on. And I said, oh, I don't, you know what? Now, meanwhile, you're going to get the introduction you've been waiting for your whole life. The great Johnny Carson, first time a comic has been on the show, introduction. <laughs> Almost everyone, I'm sure, has, has seen that, you know, that, uh, well, you know, folks, there's there's nothing better in the world than a good young comic. <laughs> and nothing harder to do, whatever it is, and the first time on the show, and this and that. And he, so, so Jim says, Larry, put the pants on. And it comes back. From the band, da 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 dum, you know. After the commercial number they played, 
And you can hear Johnny uh, tap the card on you. And, All right. Well, we have now. And Jim said, please, put the pants on now. Put the pants on this second. And I said, you know, you're, you're right, I guess. And uh, so I started to put the pants on. It just, and you, it didn't feel right. And I said, oh, Lord. And I, uh, and I, and I buttoned them up and I, I zipped them up. Don't you know at that second... Here comes Tom Stern <laughs> jogging with an even larger bump on his head now and holding up pants. And he's he's so crazed, he's actually yelling, I got the pants! I got the pants! And even a couple of stage people just go, shh. And, uh, and Johnny Carson says, uh, and uh, and this is this young man's first time on the show. And I and I just looked at Jim and looked, looked at Tom. Tom comes running up, and after a, just a beat, I ripped off the big pants. I just un, unzipped and kicked him off, kicked him off the shoes, took Tom's, you know, pant, the, the pants from Tom, and got, you know, the one leg in. And uh, next weekend he'll be at the Punchline in Atlanta, and uh, and I and I got both legs in. And I start to tuck the sh- the the shirt in, and I, I I got the shirt in and buttoned and did that. And Jim gave me the belt, and I just you know got one thing. And so please you know please welcome. And I realized there's no time for this. I just tossed him the belt again, <laughs> tossed it back to him, and Larry Miller. And this guy opens the curtain just as I button the one button on the double-breasted jacket, just the one, and just. And then just looked up, and the curtains <laughs> open, and he he was pushing me out there, but he didn't have to. I wanted to go out there. I probably floated out there, <laughs> and I did set the set. It was a great set. I was very happy. I got the big okay, and thanks. And I walked walked off again, and just said, "Well, how do you like them apples?" <laughs> My next guest has a documentary out. That's really, really, really fantastic about kicks and the sneaker business, the documentary entitled Sneakerheads. He started as a Newsweek reporter and went on to produce a number of motion pictures that will just astound you. Um, He was the vice president of motion pictures at Imagine Entertainment with Brian Grazier and Ron Howard working on such films as My Girl and For the Love of Money. His claim to fame with his own company has been legendary, producing such movies as Big Mama's House, Laws of Attraction, and the Academy Award-nominated film Little Miss Sunshine. This is a little story about a conversation he had with one of the most famous producers in the world, Imagine Entertainment's Brian Grazier. Please welcome David Friendly. But Brian said to me, just because there's a strike on doesn't mean we're going to keep you around. You better find us a movie. And that's what I remember. The last thing he said was, you better find us a movie. And then the rest of the sentence was implicit, but it was like, or you're going to be out of a job. That's what he was saying. And I hung up the phone and I thought, I was pretty successful in journalism. I'm at the LA Times. I have my own column. Why did I do this? course i didn't anticipate a strike coming or anything so i hung up the phone and i called an old a friend of mine at, at caa the young agent later tragically killed himself named jay maloney of course and he was a big supporter of mine great guy 
love him and miss him. And I said, Jay, Brian just almost fired me. What do I do? And he said, all right, take a deep breath. He said, I'm going to send you a list of every producer in the town. We have such a list. It was typed at the time. It wasn't even on a computer. And you should go down that list, see who you know, and see if somebody has a script that's available but didn't get made that you could take on. So he sends the list over. It's alphabetical. I get to the D's, and there is Rafaela De Laurentiis. Rafaela De Laurentiis was the daughter of Dino De Laurentiis, one of the legends of the business. Legendary action movie thriller kind of producer. At the time, she is running the company, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, DEG. I called her up. I said, Rafi, I got to come see you. I had profiled her in the LA Times. There was a famous photograph for the story where she had her feet up on the desk, bare feet. So it was her bare feet up on the desk. And she said, oh, you sound terrible. What's going on? I said, I got to come see you, and I'm not leaving without a script. You have to give me a script. So I drive over to her office, and I said, what have you got? She said, well, we don't have much, but there's a script, but you guys would never make this. It's about firemen. I said, sounds great. What is it? Let me see it. And the script was backdraft. And I take the script, and it's sort of like in limbo. There's some producers on it who, are, who I knew, Richard Lewis and Penn Densham and John Watson. And they have a company called Trilogy, but it's just, it's not going to get made there. And she says, maybe you can get it made with your guys and we can come aboard. And I said, don't worry about that. Let me just, let me just read it. So I read the script. And it's sort of a programmer. It's good. It, it needs some work, but I like it. And I put it on what they call weekend read. Weekend read is obviously everybody at the company can put something on the read, and you would take home very often 10 to 12 scripts a weekend. So now here's the genius of, of Brian. So I put it on weekend read, and there's the Monday morning staff meeting, and he says, this script backdraft, what does everybody think? And he goes around the room. And people are dumping on it. It reads like a TV movie. I've seen it before. This is okay writing, nothing special. And he gets to me and he goes, well, why'd you put it on Weekend Read? And I said, I thought the fire was like a character. I liked the brothers' relationships. And it just seemed, I think, firemen are heroic. It's interesting to me. And he goes in front of the whole company. Well, Ron agrees he's going to direct it. And the room goes dead silent. <laughs> and then the backpedaling begins. Well, it did have good things. That I did like this. And everybody's reversing their field. I get out of the room. I go in my office. And Brian comes down, knocks on the door. And he high fives me. This is a week after he was just about to fire me. And that's when I learned that you can always turn things around. And you may have a terrible day as a producer on Monday and having your best day the next day. And the main thing is to just keep at it. Stay in the game. My next guest I first met when she did the Young Comedian special with Rodney Dangerfield in New York City. She is a great stand-up comedian. She's a great showrunner, a great creator, has worked with amazing talent, running shows for Ellen DeGeneres, and also starting work on Seinfeld when she was a young writer in 1989. She's also written for multiple Academy Award shows, 
and truly is is one of the most talented people in the business. Has written two books that really truly are an inspiration, and I know you're going to like her a lot. Please welcome Carol Leifer. Yeah, no, the Tonight Show was the icing on the cake for any comedian, and. I started a little after, like, Freddie Prince. You could do The Tonight Show in those days, like Freddie Prince, go on, and the next day you have your own series, and it's a hit series. And it was that magical kind of time because there were three channels that everybody was watching. So everybody wanted to get on The Tonight Show, and I couldn't crack it. I don't know what it was. Uh, You know, the booker at the time... This guy named Jim McCauley was dating a woman comedian. A lot of people thought that maybe that was one of the reasons why he wasn't so hot on. I just couldn't (laughs) figure out what it was because someone like Paula Poundstone did the Letterman show and the Tonight Show. But every time they would have me to audition, I would show up and do it. I mean, I would just bring my new five minutes and do it. And it got to the point where, I mean, eight times I auditioned. I couldn't get on the show. Ten times. Sixteen times. 20, it took me 22 auditions to get on The Tonight Show. Persistence. I remember after, it was not only auditioning, but Jay was guest hosting. And he had me on for New Year's Eve doing a sketch, a takeoff of Love Connection. So I was also kind of in the environment. And then I got a call, uh, because I did it in February. Johnny retired in May. I did it in February before he retired. They said, why don't you come on the show? And I was like, I literally put the phone down. And it was one of those, you know, where you're just sitting there for five minutes, stupefied, like, like it finally happened. And, and it went great. I went on. Johnny brought me over to the couch. And I have that picture in my office now of me on panel with Johnny. And, you know, it's such a key story in my book because... That's, to me now, I look back at that and it's like, I look at it and it still makes me so happy on so many levels. But the big lesson of it is, I didn't give up. I just, you want to see me for the 22nd time? Okay, fuckers, here I am again. And with no resentment or anything like that, just doing it again. And that was the time they said, okay, so if anybody offers you the opportunity, take it. And don't take it personally and just show up and do your thing. Our next guest started the music down south and was a bassist eventually for the band Journey, Bon Jovi, Madonna, and the late Whitney Houston. He was an A&R executive at MCA and Columbia Records, an executive producer of America's Best Dance Crew, but best known as a judge for 12 seasons on American Idol, number one show for eight of those seasons in the country a guy who everybody loves and is one of the greatest reality judges in reality television history. A man who has been involved in one way or another in a thousand gold or platinum records that have sold over 200 million records. Please welcome Randy Jackson. I think the thing that really helped me is I was playing a lot of shows in Louisiana. I was doing everything. I was playing Jazz Fest since it started. You know, we had trios we put together. We had all these gigs at all these weird jazz clubs in New Orleans. We were doing all sorts of stuff. I, I got very blessed and very fortunate. I met Cannonball Adley when I was a young kid, and 
talked to him and uh, a lot of great people influenced me. I was influenced heavy by Stanley Clark and Chick Corea, which returned to forever. And as I said, you know, Miles Davis and Coltrane and all these guys, I think the one thing for me that really turned me around, I was playing all of these shows, right? All these bars. And there was one summer that I was just not happy with doing it because it wasn't the music I wanted to do. I felt like I wasn't progressing. I felt like I was just going around in a circle. It was June, middle of June. I quit this band I was playing with. I go, I'm gonna, for the next two months until I have to go back to school, 11th grade, I'm gonna practice eight hours a day. Eight hours a day, I'm gonna go to my lessons, I'm gonna learn everything I can, I'm going to learn the meaning of everything that I'm learning because it's one thing to learn it by road. Anybody can become a mimicker or a copycat. But to really learn the true or to try and find the meaning behind why did someone play that phrase, da da do 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 Why did you play that against that C minor chord? Why did that work? Why did that chord give you that feeling? What was really going on? So I went as deep as I knew how to go. And I talked to a lot of people about solos, what they do, how they feel. So I gave, forced myself to get a higher understanding education of what I was doing. That tremendously helped me, and it helped me two years later, three years later, to get the Billy Cobham gig when I was in college because I auditioned with 50 other bass players. And I didn't really want it, but my girlfriend at the time said, well, you should check it out. You never know, you might get it. That deeper understanding of the music um, really, really helped me. I must say that summer, I still look back to it and I go, wow. I don't know what was going on, but something told me to do it and I did it. My next guest is one of the most historic showrunners in the history of television. And he created such shows as Blossom and the John Larroquette Show and has remained relevant for probably 30 years, now executive producing Two and a Half Men, one of the most successful shows in the history of television. But not only that, he also wrote on iconic shows like MASH, Rhoda, Mary Tyler Moore, The Golden Girls, and All in the Family, as well as The Jackie Gleason Show. But the stories about to tell involves him sneaking out of his house and going down to see somebody that changed his life forever. A comedian named Slappy White. Please welcome Don Rio. I'm in Rhode Island. I'm watching The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Slappy White was on. He was a guest, and he was doing a routine called The First Black Vice President, <laughs> um, which was uh, he wore a derby hat, and he put on sunglasses and smoked a cigar, and it was a... Uh, it was a question and answer thing. You know, where do you uh-huh. stand on unemployment at the head of the line? Um, uh, <laughs> I understand you were the first uh, the first black athlete at the University of Mississippi. That's right. I was a javelin catcher. <laughs> so he was very funny. And, and I thought, wow, this guy is really good. The next morning, that was a Wednesday. On Thursday morning, I pick up the newspaper and he's playing a club in Rhode Island called the New Farm Supper Club. How far was that away from you? Uh, 20, 20 minutes from my house. So I made a reservation, and I started writing jokes. So I wrote jokes Thursday, Friday, and during the day on Saturday, I go to the club, 
And he did two shows. And in the first show, he did the first black astronaut. And uh, there's a maitre d' doing the, 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 the straight lines. So in other words, he just does... The way Slappy worked, he just did one full he did, routine. He, he did a monologue, and then he would he would uh, come back in whatever this costume was. And the astronaut, he had a jumpsuit and a helmet that he would come out in. And the and the, and the second one, the black vice president, he would just put on the derby hat. And, and it was a set-up punchline thing. Uh, the, the first black vice president was 25 questions and answers, 25 setups and punchlines. And the audience, the demographic of the audience was what? Well, at that point, uh, there it was white. It was all white. That was a white supper club. But as as you'll see, between uh, between the the two shows, I go to see him in the dressing room. I knock on the door. It was a dressing room. It was the manager's office. The guy who ran the the place. And Slappy was sitting behind a desk. And I came in. And I introduced myself. And I've got my jokes. And I said I've written some jokes. And he said I pay ten dollars a joke. So I said, Oh, that's fine. You know, whatever. And he said, let me see them. So I gave him these, I think I had three sheets of paper. And he read halfway down the first page, and he had reading glasses on. He looked at me over the glasses. He said, can you read? And I thought, oh, shit. What if I misspelled something? What the, what's this? And I said, yeah, you know, I, I, can, I can read pretty well. He said, the reason I ask, he says, I'm using uh, busboys and maitre d's to play straight. And, and when I do these two routines, and they can't read. They fuck up the timing, and it's a mess. I said, yeah, I can read. He said, well, would you like to go on the road with me and play straight? And he said, you can write jokes every day and, 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 uh, and play straight for me in the act, and I'll give you $150 a week. Uh, $300 a week he was going to give me. $300 a week and pay my expenses. My father was giving me 150 at the time to deliver furniture. So it wasn't a difficult choice. So I said, sure. So he said, okay, we open at the Apollo Theater next Friday night <laughs> with Jackie Wilson. So I said, great. And he gave me his address in White Plains. He said, if you can come up to the house, we can work on, you know, some jokes. You've got some good jokes here, and, you know, we'll, uh, we'll hang out. So I said, all right. Now, did you have a car? I had a car. I was, I think I was 19. So I went home, and the next morning I told my parents I was leaving town with a 52-year-old black man named Slappy. <laughs> and uh, this was not well received. My next guest began his career in the William Morris Agency mailroom where he eventually became an agent who packaged such shows as the Steve Allen Show, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, That Girl, and Gomer Pyle. Later on in his career, he's executive produced Man on the Moon, a film starring Jim Carrey, about his client, Andy Kaufman, who he represented for a number of years before he passed away. He was also the producer of the Broadway show's Colin Quinn Long Story Short and The Bronx Boys, but his claim to fame was managing the great Jerry Seinfeld, which he still does, and executive producing the show with his partner Howard West and winning an Emmy Award, a Peabody Award, and a Golden Globe Award. This story that he's about to tell about his partner Howard West and Jerry Seinfeld and the end of that iconic franchise television show is unbelievable, and I know you're going to like it. Please welcome George Shapiro. He knew that he wanted to be a comedian, and uh, another side story is that he told his father when he was like 21 years old, uh, he uh, on a bench on, on Central Park West on 81st Street. This was a very special bench, 
and he told his father, and he was doing Central Park and 81st Street, and that's that's where I had my first apartment in New York. That's where and his I got apartment my first was apartment with... near there because I had heard that he lived there, and I said to myself, "I'm going to work on 57th Street and Broadway because <laughs> my mom always told me that's the place to work." And I want to live on the Upper West Side at 81st and Central Park West, where Jerry resides, because I know if he resides there, it's got to be one hilarious. of the best places. That's hilarious. It adds to the story. Yeah, because he was, uh, it wasn't on, it was 81st. That's where the bench was, but he, I think it was uh, like close to Amsterdam in 81st Street. By the Museum of Natural History. Yeah, yeah. He and George Wallace sh- shared a uh, an apartment together. And once someone broke in, they didn't go break through the door. The walls were so thin, they just broke through the walls. <laughs> and they took the stuff out that they wanted to take out. So anyway, Jerry told his uh, dad that he wanted to, you know, to be a stand-up comic. That's what he decided to be. His father was was, was supportive. And he did that. Then jumped past the uh, nine years of success at the uh, at the Seinfeld, and uh, Jack Welch, who was the head of GE, like the number one entrepreneur in the history of the United States, had a meeting. Asked Howard and I to come to a meeting with Jerry. You know, at his apartment on uh, the Trump Tower on Central Park West. But they wanted Seinfeld. It was the number one show of comedy, drama, everything. After nine years. And they wanted him for a tenth year, and uh, he wrote he wrote on a little slip of paper, five million dollars per episode, twenty two episodes, and he handed it to Jerry, giving him the firm offer, right there in the apartment. And uh, you know Jerry, uh, you know he he felt he was at the top of his game. He felt very good, you know. But he talked about ending the series after nine years, and. Uh, then he didn't give him an answer, you know, to give us some thought. And we went on a walk around Central Park, Howard and, uh, and Jerry and I. We sat on that bench, the same bench. And uh, Jerry said, I, I was rooting for him to, to end, uh, like, uh, you know, to end at the top, you know, because it's so rare when you end as, as number one. At that time, Michael Jordan had he didn't come back to play for Washington, and John Elway just won two Super Bowls, and he quit. And my and Michael Jordan had had quit at that time before he went back to play for Washington. So Jerry just said, he said, "Look, uh, my philosophy as a stand-up comic is to leave when you're getting that screaming standing ovation, which is what we have now, instead of staying uh, staying on stage 15 minutes too long." And saying he was very good, but he was on a little long. So he came to that conclusion. Also, he was, you know, Larry David had left the show two years early to do his his movie. I think it was called Sour Grapes. So so Jerry was running the show, starring in the show. He, he was on his knees, you know, kind of exhausted. And also the timing, the timing was so great. And uh, so he told Howard and I that he said that this is, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll pass on this offer. Probably the most incredible offer in the history of comedy, you know, $110 million. And that was in Welch's book. He, he wrote this exact scene in his book. So I was exuberant. Howard doubled over in pain because he said he's the businessman of our team. But he said, Jerry, that was his opening offer. <laughs> <laughs> My next guest is an incredible, incredible person. I know you're going to like him a lot. He is a person who is responsible for some of the greatest entertainment in film we've ever seen in our lives. So original from 
the producer of the movie Airplane, the Naked Gun series, and a man who created a theater and self-financed 10 minutes of a movie that became iconic that he's going to tell you the story of. And I'm talking about Kentucky Fried Movie and producer and my guest, David Zucker. We had the script. We wrote the script. And we just got nowhere with it. And we we were meeting with... We ended up in the home of some real estate developer who said, I can, I can finance this. And so... But but he never really. He, then he said, "I want to get my. I don't want to do the whole thing myself because we got the budget. We did the budget for him, and the budget was I don't know six hundred thousand. So he says, I can't do the whole thing. I want to get my neighbors in it. So, but they want to know that you guys can actually produce this. So we want to know if your boy Landis here can direct and if Weiss can produce." Uh, they they need a sample, so let's do ten minutes of it, and um, and I'll pay for it, and uh, and I can show this to them. And so we thought that was a that was a great idea. So go go budget the write and budget the ten minutes. So we picked out four sketches from Kentucky Fried Movie. So we we put those together, had it budgeted. So then the budget came out to I don't know, I, I think it was in the high twenties, twenty let's say twenty eight thousand. So we take it back to them, and we're all excited about this. We thought, what a great idea this is! Once they see this ten minutes, the neighbors will just they'll shower us with money. So he says, uh, okay, budget twenty eight thousand, and these are the sketches. Uh, no, I don't think I'm going to do it. And he said, "No, you, you're not going to do it." And he said, "No, and I'm I'm really not interested in in investing the you know the six hundred thousand dollars either." So he's not going to do anything. It was just a no. So, I mean, it's one of those you know moments that you always remember. You know, like where you were during OJ's Bronco chase. And so we, I'm sure you remember that more than anybody else. Yeah, so, I, you know, I directed the most famous murderer of the 20th century. Anyways, back to Kentucky Fried Movie. Uh, we we leave his house and we're just we're just crushed. It's like, and we get into the car and it's like we're back to square one. And then, but on the car ride, we're we're thinking, you know, if this was worth it. For a stranger to invest twenty eight thousand, um, why wouldn't it be worth it for us to do it? If it's if we thought it was so such a great idea to do the ten minutes short, why don't we do that? We can do this. We can put up the money, and my mom and dad will help out. And so that's what we did. And we, you know, we produced this. We directed these these four sketches. We so we and we borrowed my 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 mom and dad put in ten. Jerry and Jim and I put in each five, and we did the 10 minutes, and then Landis and Weiss took it around to all the studios, and we were turned down again. So it was still, you know, so we had this, we were out 5,000 bucks a piece, which was huge for us. And so we thought, ay, we had this this $30,000 white elephant, and at least we wanted to see 
what the reaction was in front of a live audience. So we took it to uh, Kim Jorgensen, who was the uh, the the head of uh, it was it was uh, well New Art Theater, the Fox Venice, these repertory booking. It was landmark theaters. Mm-hmm. And Kim is it, it coincidentally was from Milwaukee. And so we met him there in the afternoon, and he wanted to see it before showing it on Saturday night. And so uh, we showed it to him. He fell out of his chair laughing and loved it. He said, this is great. Where where have you taken this? And we said, well, we took it to the studios. And he said, don't take it to the studios. They'll, they'll never understand this stuff. Uh, I could get you the financing. Give me two weeks. I can find the financing for you uh, from my friends from, you know, I'll get it for you. The six hundred thousand. We thought oh, more bullshit. We had just heard so much of this stuff. True to his word, Kim Jorgensen uh, got the financing for us two weeks later from his exhibitor friends in San Francisco, who showed the ten minutes in their theaters. I mean, the studios would never think to do that or anything, and so we just had the money like that six hundred and seventy thousand dollars. The next lot we have going here involves a man who was the top-grossing comedian for over a decade, known for cerebral wordplay, followed by non-cerebral actions that created 14 stand-up specials on television that always seemed to end with something that we'd never seen before. An audience wrapped in plastic a sledgehammer, and a watermelon exploding. Please welcome my guest, Gallagher. How did you feel the first time you saw Dave smash a watermelon? Um, I thought that uh, he didn't need to do that. I thought, you know, because he always told me, he said, I don't need an act, Gallagher. I'm going to be a talk show host, Right. Because I used to stand with his agent, Debbie Miller, from William Morris in the back of the comedy store. And I'd say, what are we doing? And she said, we're trying to put together enough bits to get him on The Tonight Show. And I said, how is he ever going to inherit The Tonight Show if he can't even be a guest on The Tonight Show? She says, I know we're still frying bread. Because he had this routine, we fried this bread in Western Old to prove a point. And, you know. And so it just was indicative of the whole thing. But you know what the great thing is? The last time I was on, he apologized in front of the whole country and said, I stole it. I stole it. I think that he was afraid I died without him saying that he stole it. My next guest, when I interviewed him, was probably 93 years old. He started as a radio personnel in the 50s, became a go-to TV host in the early days of television hosted shows like Video Village for CBS, Your First Impression, NBC, and Split Second. He was a comedian who headlined the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas and starred in the musical comedy feature High Button Shoes. But his claim to fame is that he created a show and hosted it that's been on the air now for over 50 years and has had many, many incarnations and is still on the air today. And I'm talking about Let's Make a Deal and my guest with a story about one of the first times he took a risk and decided that things were going really, really well for him and moved his family down 
I know you're going to like it. Please welcome Monty Hall. So I moved down to New York. My folks, my wife and two babies were in Toronto. And after five months, I said to Marilyn, sell the house. We had a little house, sell the house. And I rented a home in Mount Vernon, New York. And I went to the airport and picked them up. Now, this is an incredible story. I went to the airport and picked them up and brought them back to Mount Vernon, 241 Pennsylvania Avenue. I still remember the address. As we drove up to the house, I said to my wife, this is your new home in your new country. It's the United States of America, and this is your new home. And we walked in, the phone was ringing. It was NBC. Your show was canceled. Barry, I wasn't laughing. <laughs> but is, is that an incredible thing? After all those months and all the time, the day that I brought him back from the airport, the show was canceled. And do you know what I did? I said, Marilyn, I saved up a few hundred dollars. We're going off to Florida for a vacation. And I remember my friend saying to me, how can you go? You're unemployed. I said, I'll be unemployed when I come back, too. <laughs> but I'm going, to, I'm going to take this time to just blow it, have the money, and start all over again. And we did. My next guest is the first singer I ever interviewed in this show and this series. She is a legendary performer, a five-time Grammy Award winner, 20 best-selling albums, 30 hit singles, 75 charted songs, and over 100 million records sold. Her first hit, Don't Make Me Over, was in 1962. Her first Grammy, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, 1968. In 2013, she was the recipient of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor and probably one of the most iconic voices and creators of the song, That's What Friends Are For, and a part of probably one of the greatest ensembles ever, We Are the World. Please welcome Dionne Warwick. I did a demonstration record that uh, Backrack Davy wrote for the Shirelles. And it was sent to Florence Greenberg at Scepter Records. And she did not want the song. She wanted the voice. And that was me. And it was a case of, um, if mommy, because she was the one that said, education first. I don't care what comes up, education first. And I totally agree with her. Um, if she would agree to allow me to do this, um, I struck a deal with Backrack and David as my producers and um, made them promise me. It was a song that I did as a demo that I said, well, if I do record, this has got to be the song that I record first. And that song was called Make It Easy on Yourself. <laughs> I was on my way back into New York from school to do a session for them. And I happened to have the radio on in my little raggedy car. And out of my speakers and the radio came this gravelly voice of a male singing, Make It Easy on Yourself, who just happened to be Jerry Butler. Wow. I was but not too happy, let me put it that way, you know. So by the time I got to New York, I kind of confronted Mr. Backrack and Mr. David with them breaking their promise to me. How, I mean, how could you give the song that you said you were going to give to me and I'm listening to it on the radio by this man named Jerry Butler? And, and um, 
we kind of bantered back and forth, not too pleasantly either. And I finally said, I said, listen, the one thing you can never, ever do is try to make me something I'm not, so don't make me over. You know, get your act together. How David put pen to paper, came up with a little song called Don't Make Me Over. Happened to be my very first recording. My next guest founded the improv troupe Off the Wall and performed with Robin Williams. He later was a writer, executive producer on such shows as Laverne and Shirley and created the show Bosom Buddies where he discovered Tom Hanks, my first television show I ever worked on, Action with Jay Moore, and Ladies Man he created as well on CBS. Later on in his career, he for Disney he created the hit show Shake It Up and he wrote features Back to the Beach and Jumpin' Jack Flash. Early on in his career, what you're going to hear right now is a story about his trials and tribulations on the hit show Laverne and Shirley. This is bittersweet because after my interview a few months later, he passed away, and it was a great loss for the entertainment business. But I would like to honor him with this segment and his holy shit moment. Please welcome the late Chris Thompson. I had come off of Laverne and Shirley. I had left in the middle of like the seventh or eighth season. Uh, It was a very difficult show to work on. The girls were insane. Um, There were lots of fights, lots of demands. They were sometimes great, often abusive. Um, and I just had enough. And in the middle of the season, one season, I, uh, I just walked off the stage, got in my car, went home, packed a bag, went to the airport, and took a plane to Tahiti. And we're doing a show on Friday, but I'm in the air going to Tahiti. And they couldn't believe I had done this that I would have the gall to sort of walk out on them. So I went to Tahiti, and they, and I, I got, I, I flew from Tahiti to an island 600 miles below Tahiti called Rangaroa, which is a coral atoll, which has like five huts on it. And I was, I'm laying on the beach naked in front of my hut, and a, <laughs> a, I see a boat out in the lagoon, big sailboat. And then one of those little rubber Zodiac boats gets off the boat and putt-putts right up to the beach. And this Tahitian guy comes up, walks up to me nude on the beach and says, Are you Chris Thompson? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Who wants to know? And he said, I have Penny Marshall on the ship to shore radio. (laughs) I said... I said, I went to my room. I said, here's $300. You never found me. <laughs> and he went off. But that shows the power of television stars in that day and age. They could somehow track me down on an island in Tahiti. Anyway, they wanted me back, but I decided not to. My next guest is probably the greatest comedy showrunner creator in the history of television. He created such shows as Sanford and Son, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, One Day at a Time, The Jeffersons, Good Times, Fernwood Tonight, and Maud, as well as the legendary show All in the Family. 
He had three of the top four shows on TV in one season, five of the top nine in another, won four Emmy Awards, a Peabody Award, and was inducted to the TV Hall of Fame in 1984 and awarded the National Medal of the Arts in 1999. When I interviewed this guy, thanks to Phil Rosenthal, the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, he was lucid and clear and powerful and 93 years old. Please welcome my guest, one of the greatest honors that I've ever had on this podcast, Norman Lear. Frank Sinatra. You have a great story about Frank Sinatra. Well, you have so many stories about Frank, but I hope you tell the one about trying to get him your movie script. Well, the one you wanted me to tell was he wouldn't read. I knew his producer very well, gave it to the producer, he gave it to Frank. He never read it. Uh, for months, I, uh, the, it, it, in the first, it was about a kid coming to uh, of age, his younger brother, and uh, it was called Cockadoodle-Doo at the first <laughs> iteration. To get him to read it, I sent a dozen hens in a cage <laughs> and a script. Uh, he didn't. He didn't read it. We, <laughs> Uh, was called something else because it was trumpeting a life or something. We sent trumpets. Uh, he didn't hear it, or he didn't, <laughs> it didn't matter. At one, at the the last thing we did, we could only do this in a studio where all these things existed. We had a big truck, and we uh, and we laid out on the truck a corner of a room, a reading corner. There was a rug. There was a chair like you're sitting in with an ottoman, a chair to read by. There was a lamp. Uh, there was, uh, speaking of Jackie Gleason, he had an album called Music to Read By. And uh, so we had uh, I mean, phonograph player and an album Music to Read By, a smoking jacket. It was perfect. They set it all up on his lawn uh, in the late afternoon. How did they get the electricity for a, the lamp? I, I told them to get a long enough cord so they could... <laughs> And and so the lamp was on so that he would be coming home at a time. And anyway, what I didn't bargain for was that two people preceded him coming home to get things ready for him. They saw what they thought was a delivery, and they put everything away. The only thing he noticed that was different, because they put the lamp wherever the hell they put a lamp, was his smoking. He didn't remember buying a smoking jacket, a smoking jacket. <laughs> But I called his agent a few days later when I heard nothing, and I said, the hell with it. I give up. He won't. And his agent, who knew about this because he helped me with the whole idea, uh, said, you mean Frank didn't react to that? I said, no. He said, there's no way he wouldn't react to that. That was the most. Frank didn't know about it, just found the smoking jacket and thought nothing of that. But when he did learn what we had gone through, he called me, and, uh, and he read the script. My next guest started as an intern at Tapestry Films, where he worked his way up through the business to become one of the heads of the company, developing such films as She's All That, Serendipity, and producing probably one of the most historic and one of the biggest grossing comedy films at 200 million-plus, Wedding Crashers. And a guy who 
also produced a film that really, really made an impact on me in the past year, Earth to Echo. The story he's about to tell, I think, is very, very inspiring, and I know you're going to like it a lot. Please welcome Andrew Panay. I look at myself in the mirror in my career, regardless of Wedding Crashers or Echo coming out in a minute or Hot Tub or whatever the movies I'm doing and creating, I... I still think that my job is like maybe 50% the other stuff and 50% the creating and the talent. I, I don't think it ever goes away, Barry. My guess is you still feel the same. I mean, whether I get a latte for my movie star now, I, I will do that to this day because it never ends. And I think for me, I always looked at my life. It's first of all, it's super humbling a to be here. And I thank you for that. I, you know, to start being at at a place in my career where I get to do interviews about how I got here is such an honor, but also, you know, I still, it's weird to be having this kind of interview and get to this place in my career because I don't feel like I'm there. And where however many hit movies or failures or whatever I've had here and there and all the things, it feels like, and I'm sure you feel the same way, you ask any successful person in the film business, what success? You know, it's always about the next thing. So I think the thing that I've learned the most from the very first day, day one, is it's always going to be humbling. So you never feel you're there, which is what makes it exciting. What's probably the motivation for everybody to get up in the morning. I still, I feel... I feel content, but, but I did then, um, but never satisfied, you know, getting a cappuccino was about making the cappuccino great and getting it on time, you know, not about, and just like delivering a cappuccino to my actor. Now, the difference now is like guessing when my actor might want the cappuccino. And, and so what I, what I got to learn as an assistant, I think then was, it's not about the cappuccino. It's about performance. And I think that for my colleagues that I was working with and for the people I was working for, they looked at it like, no, they need a cappuccino to get a little bit of a caffeine rush so they could kick butt in the next two meetings. It was all about performance and nothing is not about performance in the film business. So if it's about getting jelly bellies for your actor or for your co-producer, it's because they want to feel good for a few minutes before they get up on stage. Everything has a purpose, right? I think the thing is that I, I try to instill in my assistants now is nobody's an assistant. I'm an assistant. I'm just glorified. I'm just a sexier version, maybe physically, maybe career-wise, however you want to put it. But it, meaning that if you have to look at everything as, um, as having sex appeal, and I looked at it that way when I was a young guy coming up in the business, that everything mattered, and it had to be awesome, Right. And then that dovetailed into my producing because producing is just about getting ahead of things. So I never tell my assistants that it doesn't mean something. If there's a method to the madness, you know, if I need something right that moment, they have no idea how that's going to domino in the rest of the day. If I, I need a candy cane, it's Christmas time. I need the candy cane and I need it now. I don't understand why Andrew needs a candy cane. It just seems like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He wants his candy cane. Well, guess what? The candy cane was going to be for an actor, actor's child who I was going to see, who I wanted to give a candy cane to, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to introduce myself and have and have a, and be in and be loving to this 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 family that I'm going to be with for the next six months because that's the right thing to do. It's Christmas time, so everything has a reason. Um, and and uh, you know, if it's gassing the car, it's like it's no different than 
we better get the the latest script to me right now because if we don't have the latest draft, then we're not going to get the scene done properly. But it's no different to making sure that there's gas in the car so we can get to set, which is just as important. My next guest is a man I love and respect dearly. I got a chance to work with him and Jay Moore, executive producing a show called Last Comic Standing for eight years. But he's best known for his work on NBC where he created Saturday morning live-action kids television and eventually had six shows in syndication, which is unheard of. The show he's most remembered for is the one that's played in 95 countries across the world and is one of the most successful, if not the most successful shows of its type. And I'm talking about Saved by the Bell. The stories about the tale is how that all came about in his dealings with the youngest network president in history, the late Brandon Tartikoff. Please welcome my friend, a wonderful mentor, and a great human being, Peter Engel. In 1986, Brandon and I had breakfast at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and we had had some confrontations over several pilots uh, uptown Saturday night with Cleavon Little and uh, California Girls, which was girls at the, the lifeguards at the beach. And uh, he said, to, and we had not seen each other in about six or eight months. And then we, we had had some confrontations, uh, mainly not his fault, but his boss at the time, Dick Ebersole. Now he was the head guy and he says to me where are you where are you hanging where are you where are you, where are you at i said i'm in brentwood <laughs> he said well, why don't you come to nbc nbc productions i'm really just starting to gear it up and why don't you come um why don't you come for a year or two so i said okay so i went to so i went to nbc i was the lowest paid producer in the building <laughs> and and we weren't on the lot like I was later when we had our own company, our own wing of a building. Uh, we were on Lancashire, NBC Productions. And one day uh, I came home. My wife said, how was your day? I said, well, Brandon and I had a meeting. Brandon says he wants me to do a Saturday morning live action comedy uh, because they're losing the high end. And I and she said, that's great. You, the boys were like three and five at the time. And he, and you've always wanted to do a show. They could grow up with like happy days. She, I, I said, yeah. She said, why did you tell him? I told him to get someone else. <laughs> <laughs> she said, what? He's giving you, you know, uh, he's, he's giving you a, a time slot perhaps. And you said, no. I said, yeah, I said, no. So uh, I said, that was stupid, huh? So I went back and I um, said, I'll do it. I'll have a show for you in four weeks. I'll have a concept in four weeks. And I started to write this concept um, of an untitled show with a kid named Zach, who was a con man, but a lovable con man. And I remember writing the first scene, and my daughter was out for the summer, who was the same age, a little younger than the Bell kids, as it turned out. And I said, what do you think of this scene? She says, I'm in love with Zach. I said, what do you mean you're in love with, with Zach? <laughs> he doesn't exist. He's a name. He says, I'm in love with Zach. Anyway, so we came back and we pitched the show. And uh, about it was really uh, a week in the life of. From the, when the, when, from the bell rang Monday morning 
to when the bell rang Friday. And the first year or two, year and a half, we only covered Monday through Friday. And then we went to the beach. We went to Vegas. We went to Hawaii. Well, those were movies. But we pitched the show, and Brandon had a bad cold. And by this time, I had a couple of writers on with me, even though I had written. And, and I said, when we go to see Brandon, you don't say a word unless he asks you a direct question. Do you understand that? And when, you, when, when you, he asks you a question, it's quick, and we get out of there as quickly as possible. This Brandon has some of the greatest ideas, and he has some of the worst ideas, and we can't wait around for his worst ideas. So he, Brandon had a cold, and he's apologizing that he's not up to snuff, which I was delighted because we couldn't get any stupid ideas in. And and what I didn't know was he wanted a junior high school show, and he didn't know, and I didn't say it, that we, it was the first day of high school. That's when the show started <laughs> because I knew we were going to go to the mat on this. And we pitched the thing, and he approves everything. He asked the guys a few questions. Uh, he knew some of them from other shows. And all of a sudden, he said, what are we going to call this thing? I said, I don't know. And he said, how about, he, how about at the bell or when the bell rings? And I said, no, you already did a pilot that failed called at the bell about construction workers. And Tom Tenowitz, who was my number one guy, goes, how about say by the bell? And I look at him. And if a look killed, he would have been dead, vaporized. And... And Brandon says, I like that. See if it'll clear. <laughs> and I, we walk out of the meeting. I go, that's the stupidest fucking idea <laughs> I've ever heard. Saved by the bell. I ain't calling my I ain't calling my show Saved by the Bell. And I say to Franco Barrio, who's my line producer, all right, go through the motions, and hopefully it won't clear. The next day I go into stage nine. <laughs> Over the door is a sign Saved by the Bell. <laughs> I had five composers come in. And I gave the notion, no bells, no lyrics saved by the bell, no ringing bell. I don't want to hear anything about bells. Five guys come in. The first four guys, it was nothing special. Scotty Gale comes in. The bell rings on his recording. When I wake up in the morning and, the bell, and the, my staff thinks I'm going to kill him. I'm, they, they're looking at me. He's going to kill him. And I go, that's it. Don't listen to me. <laughs> and that's how Saved by the Bell came about. My next guest is a young man who's made a huge impact on comedy in the past five years. He was featured on Comedy Central's Premium Blend and quickly worked his way up to segments on VH1's Best Week Ever. Then as a writer for the show Outsourced and I Hate My Teenage Daughter. But after two successful appearances in stand-up on Conan O'Brien's show... He got tapped to host his own show on TBS following Conan's show, which was a dream of a lifetime and a really wonderful, wonderful show that should still be on the air. This guy is an inspiration any way you slice it. And I've always enjoyed him. I've always enjoyed his aura. And now the story he's going to tell you about how he got from a stand-up appearance on Conan O'Brien to his own show will probably be one that you'll be talking about for a long time. Please welcome Pete Holmes. So I'm sending JP seven-minute tapes, seven-minute tapes, nothing, nothing going. He likes them, but it's not working. Then he happens to be at the improv, another one of those providential moments. He happens to be at the improv one of the nights he's watching, I think it was Sean Patton run a set, and then he stays for my set. 
he watches me. I do 45 minutes and I did the bit that I knew was going to get me Conan. Like I had a feeling I was like, this is the bit I get off stage. He's like, that's the bit. So this bit creates an urgency. Then I was lucky that I had uh, John Oliver's New York stand-up show. It's a comedy central show also booked. I'm going to do that bit on that show. So then it becomes this like, who's going to break the bit. I know this is crazy, but these are the things that worked in my favor. It's not crazy. He happened to be there. He saw the bit, the bit that I was excited for him to see. He get, he sees me off stage. He goes, that's the bit I want on the show. doesn't matter what we sandwich. Just do that bit. It's my bit about Google. I don't know if you've seen it. It's about how Google's ruining our lives. Then, uh, so I got to do Conan because of the urgency and because of the providence that he happened to see me. And then I do Conan. And I didn't think I destroyed. I didn't think I did that great. I actually did seven minutes. It's Whoa. two minutes over. I don't, it's over. I don't believe you did destroy. Yeah. But what I do believe happened was that you had this calming, wonderful presence about oh, you. Barry. And you did close the way you wanted to close. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And as you know. If you watch that for a set, I'm wearing a smock. I'm 200 and like something crazy. I'm like just wearing a big, just wearing a big huge shirt. shirt. I should have been painting in that shirt. <laughs> I gave no thought to my outfit, my big Conan debut, and I just wore it. I'm swimming in a shirt. So Conan sees you. But then I do it again. It was the it was the two times. The first time he he ended up talking to me for like five or six minutes, which was a big deal. You know, he was heading to the post show meeting, took time to talk to me. So I knew I had done well. Then I did it again, not that long after, maybe six months later, and um, did it again. And by that point, I had lost a lot of weight. This is weird. You never hear stories like that. At least I don't. I feel like all you managers and agents have learned to stop telling people to lose weight. Like you, you all got scared or something. Like oh. the Joker says, "What did your balls fall off?" You know what I mean? Like you won't tell anyone to whiten their teeth or, or do something with their get a better haircut or wear a better shirt. Nobody says that shit. Neil Brennan. So I have this meal with Neil at Swingers in Santa Monica, and he goes like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Lose thirty pounds." He just said it to me, point, he's like, get some better clothes, lose 30 pounds. He's like, you could be in movies. And I really, like, he's so blunt. If you've listened to his podcast on the show, you can see he's just like a sharpshooting, blunt person that's just going to say it how it is. How'd you handle that? I loved it. And I did. And in between those two sets, if you look at my first cone and my second cone, that's my before picture and my after picture. I have I got like a little bit of a tan. My teeth are white. I did like a juice fast. Like I lost a shit ton of weight really quickly, but I'm also glowing because I'm filled with like macro and micronutrients. <laughs> you know what I mean? All I've had is kale and carrots and like fucking giving everybody a boner, as you'd say. And it was that second set that I really thought both sets were very positive. Both sets were from this place of light, as you would say. I wasn't putting anybody down. And I went out as if it was my show. Dana Carvey actually just did my podcast. I couldn't believe he said that. He was like, you walked out like you already had a TV show. And I don't even feel like I did. But I, I walked out. And like I said, my neck is out. I'm not covering my stomach. How many comics are like, so Triscuits are coming out with new flavors? You know, what I mean, like, oh, open it up. It's your show. Conan's at the desk. I'm on the floor for five minutes, for seven minutes. This is going to be my show because that's what he wants me to do. He wants me to kill. So I'll go out and I'll kill. And then after that said, it wasn't long after that they were like, JP was like, there's a short list of people and you're at the top to be the talk show guy. My next guest is a guy who I've known my whole career. And when it came time to starting this podcast, there wasn't even a question in my mind of the first person I was going to ask. And it was him. 
Right now, he's the president of Viacom Entertainment Group, overseeing such networks as Comedy Central, TV Land, and Spike TV. But he was the president of MTV, Comedy Central, and Fox. He's credited with bringing to MTV, MTV News, The Real World, Road Rules, Beavis and Butthead, and the Video Music Awards and MTV Movie Awards. He's also responsible for such shows as The Dead Zone, Monk, Hot in Cleveland, Malcolm in the Middle, The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, and The Comedy Central Roast. But the story he's about to tell is about a show that was an animated show that started off as something very, very tiny and ended up probably bringing the company and Viacom Entertainment Group over a billion dollars worth of revenue. And I'm talking about the show South Park and my guest, a guy who, in my business, needs no introduction, Doug Herzog. It was made as a video Christmas card. Uh, Brian uh, Graydon, who later actually sort of replaced me at MTV, uh, was had a development pod at Fox, and he asked these guys who were working for him, these young guys, Matt and Trey, if they would... He had seen something they had done, an animated short they had done in college, uh, not too dissimilar. And he said, can you, can you turn that into a video Christmas card for me? Which they did, which was then sent out to all his friends as a Christmas card on VHS. And it kind of went... VHS on Christmas VHS. Card. And it kind of went viral in an, in an era before there was virals. People saw it went crazy for it, and it would start making and copies. And people started duplicating Sorry, the VHS duplicated these VHS. So that now it's getting passed around on VHS. Imagine that, kids. So it comes to the attention of Debbie Liebling, who is running Comedy Central Development here in Century City, Los Angeles. And I'm out here, and she says, i got to show you something. And she pulls me into a conference room. She puts the VHS in, and she runs it, and she plays the Spirit of Christmas, the now legendary Spirit of Christmas. Again, a passionate executive who you talk about other executives who are listening here. It's like you ask yourself, how do you move up? How do you move up to where you are? How do you get to the next level? And for Debbie, how she got to the next level, she took a risk. You might consider yourself very approachable, but she's going in. She's taking you in a conference room. Oh, she was passionate about it. There's no question about it. So she showed it to me. I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. I still think it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I watched it, and then I said to her, could you, could you play that again? And she played it again, and I said, again, wrongly, wrong again, I said, you know, I don't think we can put that on TV, but we should be in business with these guys. Now, I was wrong because we did put that on TV, and it, it, it succeeded wildly. And then Debbie, you know, I said, go get them. Let's, we got to do this. Like, we just have to do this. Now, did we know it was going to be as brilliant as it has remained? No. Did, Did we you... know it was going to be as successful as it became? No. We just knew it was really funny. It made us laugh. And there was no question that it was somewhat controversial and attention-getting. And we thought we could use a little bit of that at Comedy Central, a place that nobody was paying attention to. So at the very least, we thought we'll get some attention with this. My next guest is a writer, director, and comedian who started as the doorman of my comedy club, in Greenwich Village, the Boston Comedy Club. He's been nominated for three Emmy Awards. He co-wrote the movie Half-Baked. He directed the film The Goods, starring Jeremy Piven, which also featured Will Ferrell. But his probably his biggest claim to fame is the co-creator of a show with a guy he met at the Comedy Club with the title of the show of this comedian's name, Chappelle's Show. 
and the story's about to tell you about what it's like to be an artist and what it's like to have that fire inside you and what it's like to go through um, really difficult times that you face and how you channel that into something great is one of the most inspirational and gut-wrenching stories you'll ever hear. Just saw his one-person show in Montreal, and it was fantastic. I know you're going to like this segment a lot. Please welcome Neil Brennan. The thing is, is like I grew up in the 80s, but I might as well have grown up in the 40s in that the amount of people, and my parents were born in 1930 and 1933, So, and my dad's one of 13 Irish Catholic alcoholic people, my mom, kind of the same thing. So it was like just a, it was a pretty rough uh, way to grow up. So you're an adult child. I am an adult child. My mom didn't struggle with alcoholism, but she's she's married. You know, it's like all the codependency And out of stuff. the 10 kids, how many have the but, gene? You know what's funny? None of None. It was, no. I think we all learned a pretty valuable lesson about alcohol, but we have the gene, but it's also there. We also have a sort of a built-in wrecking ball socially interpersonally i think all of us have have problems if we're talking about sort of alcoholism and roles i was probably the mascot that's a classic role which is i always say i was like the um it was like the 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 rebel leader i was like my dad everyone knew i was kind of funny and smart so, like, I was a bit like, don't touch Neil kind of thing. Um, so I was a bit of like the, like my father, not like my, I was like my dad knew, like, I'm not going to fuck with Neil. I'm a piece of shit, <laughs> but I'm not going to take it out on Neil. Most great artists have this, like, hole that's blown through them yeah. early on. And they're just constantly trying to fill the hole some way I they could can. give you that, like, I said to my dad, he died not you know in the last couple of years and i said to him before he died i go hey i don't think you loved us and he goes you're right there's a hole <laughs> there's a pretty big hole people think that's like a horrifying story it is a horrifying story but growing up the way i grew up it was actually felt good to hear it because you go oh i didn't think you did i just wanted to make sure so that i'm not also crazy and misinterpreting things if you had a choice to trade your career for knowing that your father take loved love. you, I really would. I would take love because I don't. Th I think if you, if you have, if you're a whole person, I don't think I'm a whole person. If you're a or, or whatever, that's a big term. It's a relative term, a whole person or not. But I think if you have love, if you have, uh, if you feel complete you don't need this shit you don't chase it in a way that's uh you know you don't chase it my next guest was a very hard get he is a guy from all the way across the world and he produced over 35 films in his career and has been nominated for 16 academy awards winning three he executive produced all the rambo films terminator 2 total recall Terminator 3, Cliffhanger, Chaplin, and Stargate, among others, and his films have grossed over $3 billion. But the story he's about to tell involves a movie that is very, 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 very influential in film, and one, if you've seen it, 
you'll never forget it. Basic instinct. So without further ado, I'll let him tell the story. Uh, one of the greatest film producers, president of Carol Co. Films. Please welcome Mario Casar. I got a call from an agent called Guy McElwain, 7.30 in the morning. He says, Mario, <laughs> I have a great screenplay for you to read. You're the first one, 250, and you can have it. <laughs> and of course you said, I don't have to read it. I'll pay you the 250. No, no, no. I said send it over. Okay. I got it by 8.30. 9 o'clock, I call him back. <laughs> or 9.30, I call him back. He said, oh, I'm at the airport on my way to Hawaii. Uh, talk to Jeff Berg, because he was ICM. Jeff Berg, of course, was the president of ICM. Right. Back then, now he's the president of Resolution, the new agency that just opened up here in town, right next door to me. Right next door. So I called Jeff, and Jeff said, uh, well, you know, since we started, we already have offers. We're at four fifty or five dollars. I said, wait, wait a minute. I got, wake, <laughs> I got waking up at at seven thirty in the morning to tell me, read this. Two fifty is yours. Now we are at four fifty five hundred. It's not even ten o'clock. What happened? I said, well, you know, everybody likes the screenplay now, and everybody. I said, okay, so it wasn't given to me like this. I was used in a way with my first offer. If I said yes. Then you go and say, Mario paid this, whatever. So they started, like, auctioning it. <laughs> quarter, quarter to six or ten to six. <laughs> I got a call from Jeff Berg. He said, we have an offer for 2750 <laughs> I said, excuse me? 2.75 million. 2. I said, Jeff, do you remember the 250 of 9 o'clock this morning or 8.30? He said, yeah, but what can I tell you? It's 2.750. For a script. And from who? From my ex-partner. Because at that time, I was no longer uh, with Andy Viner. He, did his, his, he opened his own company, and he also was after the screenplay. But it started with me. And actually, he was not like doing it on purpose. He wanted it. He was starting his company. He wanted uh, this screenplay. I said, Jeff, this has been a long day. I'm from 250 to 2.750. Now, if you think after all this, I'm going to lose this screen <laughs> for $250,000. Now, tell me what is it when, so I can hear the word done, close. He said, 3 million is you. I said, oh my God. I, I want to hear it one more time. <laughs> He said, three million is yours. I said, three million is yours. <laughs> and I closed the deal. And I don't have to tell you the next day, the variety, the blah, the blah. You paid three million dollars for a script, for a spec script. With nobody attached. No one attached. No. That, that was the largest amount of money ever. Ever. Ever paid for a yes. script. <laughs> yes. Yes. But actually, it was a good investment, wasn't it? My next guest was the CEO and chairman of HBO during time in the network that was unprecedented and had so many Emmy award-winning shows. It was just unbelievable, including shows like Sex and the City, The Sopranos, Entourage, Curb Your Enthusiasm. The story he's about to tell is when he started as a stand-up comedy duo with his friend who, a couple of decades later, created Comic Relief with. And that guy was Bob Zamuda. And I know you're going to like this story a lot. Please welcome, now the president of Stars Network, an amazing man, Chris Albrecht. 
So we moved into Manhattan on 88th between Broadway and Amsterdam, not a place you would want to walk. Uh, it was a two-bedroom apartment that we bought. The, we, we, we bought. We, we took the furniture that was already in it. Um, and it, was, it was, had a lot of windows, but two feet away from every window was the wall to another building. <laughs> so whether it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 2 o'clock at night was sort of immaterial. And we, you know, we painted it ourselves. It was back in the days when you needed a real police lock on the, on the doors. And we worked as techies behind the scenes at the theater of the Riverside Church, which was up on 125th Street and uh, Riverside Drive. You know, Bob took me to the improv. I remember the first time I walked into the improv, he was telling me about the Untouchables and Andy Kaufman and a bunch of other comics that played there, Robert Klein and everybody else. So uh, we sat in the back of the room, we watched, then we went home and we worked on an act together in our living room. And then we st stood around on, on audition night, 1973, doing props. Okay. <laughs> But props were as useful then as they are now. You know, we had a black case. <laughs> we had an act. That we, we had an act. In, in, in one sketch, we needed a jar of Vaseline. In a completely different sketch, we needed a banana. But we needed a new jar of Vaseline and a new banana every night. So we would walk downtown because we didn't have enough money to take uh, a, a, a cab. And the subways were kind of scary at, at that time of night, especially since we were, in, we're in, ending up in, in uh, Times Square. So we would walk past, I don't know what they were, they were 7-Elevens, no, they weren't 7-Elevens, they were Smilers, which was the chain of grocery stores in New York, and I would say to Muda, okay, it's your turn to go in and get the Vaseline and the banana tonight, because <laughs> the one thing that you didn't really want to go in was to go into a Smilers and ask for a jar of Vaseline and a banana. Um, but the banana was for a, a uh, commercial parody sketch that we used to do. There was a commercial on, on, on at the time where this... That guy would jump into a pool and he'd come out of the water and he'd go, hard to believe I'm bald because his water was, uh, his, his, his hair was all plastered to his face. And it turned out it was like for one of those wig places, uh -huh. right? So I would sit on Zamuda's lap and he would put his arms through me and I would just be like a rag doll. <laughs> and then he would, and I would sit up and, I, and he would move every, you know, my head and my body and I would go, hard to believe I'm dead? I know it is. And then in the end, I can, I can, you can swim with it, you can do it, and you can even eat with it. And I'd open my mouth and he'd smash a banana in my forehead. <laughs> Because it, it was a total miss. It was funnier in person than it is on the <laughs> podcast. My next guest claimed the fame was from her years on Saturday Night Live, where she became one of the most extraordinary cast members in the history of the show. She's appeared in Scary Movie, Inspector Gadget, Liar Liar, Dumb and Dumber, Shrek the Third, Southland Tales, and Grown Ups 2. She was nominated for an Emmy Award for appearance on Just Shoot Me, and she's also appeared on such shows as Strangers with Candy, The New Normal, Hot in Cleveland, and an incredible recurring role on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Please welcome an unbelievable talent and an unbelievable person, Sherry O'Terry. We got a call that Lauren wanted to see Will and I at his office in pa Paramount. So I remember buying a pink dress that I really couldn't afford. I was first, so I went in. And um, it's very awkward because you're not sure what he wants and you want him to be happy with you. And I thought this is a good sign, but um, I, it's probably just another step. And so I went in and he's like, Sherry, we'd like you to come to New York. And he was quiet, and I was like, um, to, to shop? 
um, uh, to hang out. Um, uh, and he goes, and you know, you'll have to move. And um, and I'm not saying anything. And I, like, I want him to say the words. Like, why isn't he saying the words? And I just thought that maybe I didn't get it. I have to move, and they're gonna try me out. You know, and so how did the meeting end? And then I just, I, I think I had gotten it, you know, but those words weren't said, and I guess I figured I'll find out later. It's a stupid person that asks a question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find out later. I've done that so many times where it's like I'm so scared to ask a question that I'm just like, uh, you know, I'll wait till later and find out. I'll call somebody. I w- I went behind the desk and hugged him, and he was not ready for that. And I was like, you know, I really hugged him. He's like, okay. <laughs> um, I walked out, and there was Will, and he goes, "What happened?" And I didn't want to ruin it for him. You know, I didn't want to spoil his surprise. Yeah. So I just go, he just asked more questions. <laughs> and then I went in and I waited for him and he walked out and um, he didn't say a word. And we just held our held hands and walked out, not said a word to the parking lot. By the time we got to our cars, we just started jumping up and down and screaming. And we both and then we pulled over in our cars to call our dads. My next guest is the owner, chairman, and CEO of Buna Murray, one of the greatest producers of reality television in the world. He's launched modern reality TV into the next dimension with shows like The Real World, where he created and also executive produced numerous hit reality shows piggybacking on that early success, including Road Rules, The Simple Life, Starting Over, Making the Band, Love Cruise, Bad Girls Club, and Project Runway. This guy's story is unbelievable. Please welcome John Murray. And and, and it wasn't like I, I was burning to tell people, but I think I waited till I finally, um, you know, began to, I began to explore it sort of on my own and started to make some friends, some gay friends. And then at the point when I had, I was probably, you know, 25 or 26, living in New York by then, um, had a boyfriend. I decided that was the time that I needed to tell my parents because I felt like I was keeping some important part of me from them. And so I felt that was the time to tell them. At that point, most of my friends, most of my work friends knew. Um, and so then I, I let my parents know. Um, How did that go? And I, you know, my parents were... Um, uh, were were uh, uh, very um, progressive people, um, and uh, they were they were Unitarians, which is a somewhat liberal religion. So they didn't have any religious baggage. But um, my dad was fine. He was a psychologist, sort of processed it the way he processed things. Um, he wasn't a particularly emotional person, so he w- he w- he was fine. My mom, I think. Um, she she sort of um it made her take a step back only because i think she had this plan for me you know that i was going to you know get married and have kids and all that and at that time the assumption was if you were gay you didn't get married and have kids um so i think it took her back for a moment she reacted she was supportive but i could tell she was it took her more time to process it and and interestingly enough i was much closer to her um, so I think the impact was was just time, but you know, within months she was 
fully supportive and my parents joined, you know, PFLAG and, you know, they would always send me clippings about, you know, when good things happened in terms of changing laws and things like that. So they were on board very quickly and were very warm towards uh, my then boyfriend and and later towards my partner. So, um, you know, and then the great thing was um, flash forward, you know, uh, 10 or Actually, about 15 years later, uh, my partner and I decided to have a child, and um, uh, we had our child, Dylan, through adoption, and um, my mom flew out from Syracuse uh, right after he was born, and it was sort of amazing. She had had saved um, some of my baby clothes, and, uh, you know, it was sort of really touching because... You know, she went through those after I told her I was gay. There was those 15 years where the assumption was gay people don't have kids. And so it was really wonderful when she uh, showed up and brought the things out and uh, um, we took pictures with our son in them. And it was just a great moment. My next guest is the former president and chairman of ABC Television, responsible for the huge turnarounds at ABC, launching such shows as Lost, Desperate Housewives, Grey's Anatomy, Dancing with the Stars, and Modern Family. But sometimes the best holy shit moments revolve around the shows that get away. I know you're going to like this story. Please welcome my guest, Steve McPherson. The big thing on CSI was not only did it go to CBS, but then the powers that be, Bob Iger, at uh, at Disney started saying, well, Jerry Bruckheimer is going to run over budget and it's a show for another network and we shouldn't do this. And so Lloyd in one meeting trying, I think, to just kind of rattle everyone said, let's just give it away, not expecting that they really would. And they did. And they gave their 50 percent away to Atlantic Alliance oh. um, and Atlantic Alliance, you know, sold a few years ago for billions of dollars. And 99% of that was CSI. So not only had they passed on the show, but then they gave away ownership of it. And so what the irony is then, so there I am, right? And I'm like, I'm somewhat, I can put my finger on this giant hit, but it's like the bane of their existence. My next guest is the president of Conoco Productions with Conan O'Brien. And he's the former president of NBC Universal, developing such shows as House, The Office, Monk. Battlestar Galactica, Law and Order SVU, previously a senior VP for Touchstone Television, helping develop and produce Ellen, Boy Meets World, and Home Improvement. He started as a journalist for Rolling Stone, The New York Observer, and Esquire. But the stories about the tell is really, really special, and I know you're going to like it a lot. Please welcome a guy who just exudes leadership and class and dignity, David Kissinger. I have distinct memories. You know, Nixon used to spend the summer in San Clemente, and so my father would have to come out to San Clemente, and they would rent a house for him, which uh, luckily was on the beach, and I would get to spend the summer there, and it was great. But... Frequently, I would be awake on a Saturday morning long before anybody else in the house, and we we would be staying in this modern house that was largely glass. And I'd be sitting there watching um, the banana splits 
And the next thing I know, the president of the United States is rapping on the glass, <laughs> waving at me as he took a solitary walk down the beach. And I would like jump out of my <laughs> chair in my pajamas and salute. Uh, so it was a very surreal experience. My next guest began doing stand-up in Toronto in 1989 and rose to perhaps the most popular stand-up comedian in the world. He sold over 30,000 tickets in two days and broke the UK comedy sales record at London's O2 Arena. He's appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and was a panel judge on season eight of Last Comic Standing. A guy who is one of the nicest guys in the world and one of the most successful comedians I've ever come in contact with. Please welcome Russell Peters. And there was a lot of racism towards Indian people back then. And and I think dealing with a lot of racism at a very young age, you get reminded that you're not just a guy. From I honestly can remember from about the age of four. Um, three even. I, actually, I, I remember being babysat at three and, and hearing things being said to me. And then I didn't really know what they were talking about. Then, then you continually hear it over the years and you're like, what is this? What, is, what are they talking about? And who is this fucking packy that they keep referring to? I'm worried about this packy guy that they keep talking about. And So for our audience, a, a derogatory way to be racist towards an Indian person would be, what would they say, packy? Yeah, they would call us packy. Is that, that, like that like the N-word? It's very much our N-word. And, uh, and while you would never just hear packy, you would hear fucking in front of it. Uh, the minute you hear fucking in front of any word is always bad. You know, you could say the N-word, but you add fucking, that adds a little bit more venom to it, doesn't it? And uh, I didn't get it. I just couldn't figure it out. I don't. I didn't understand, you know. My name is Russell Peters. My mom and dad are Eric and Maureen. They both spoke English perfectly. Matter of fact, better than most of the people you'd ever meet in your life. My dad was a an English major. He was a linguist. He was a writer. Um... Um, obviously, you know, to himself, but he, at the end of the day, his job was a meat inspector. He, he didn't have a great job. He worked a federal meat inspector. He worked in a filthy chicken plant and a beef slaughterhouse. And so my dad would come home stinking and covered in blood every day. And my mom worked in Kmart in the, in the cafeteria when Kmart's had a cafeteria. You remember that? Yeah. A little restaurant in the back. Yeah. My mom worked in there and, um, so, you know, from from the time I was born, my parents both worked. I was a latchkey kid, and my brother used to take care of me, who's six years older than me. So when I was, you know, four, he was 10, and we would be alone on the streets and in the house and, and on the bus, so just just the way it was. And it didn't, you know, it wasn't and, a bad thing. And that was legal in Canada to do that? It was that? the 70s, right? It was, there were, we didn't even have car seats. Remember that? We didn't grow up with car seats or seat belts. They weren't that important to us, and... Yeah, we're very darty now. Our eyes are darting all over the place, you know. It's just the way it was, you know. My dad worked and my mom worked. They would they would get up early in the morning. I think they would wake up every morning at 6 and leave by 7. And that was their day, every day. And then my mom would come home and she would make us dinner. And uh, that was it. We didn't really have much of a... It wasn't like a big social thing like, oh, hey, mom, hey, dad, good to see you. It was more like, all right, there they are. And there they go. I'll see you later, you know what I mean? My next guest started at the agency ICM as an assistant and joined Bauer Benedict, which became United Talent Agency. As an agent there, he became partner at 29 years old and then eventually left the company and partnered with Judy Huffland and founded Huffland Pallone Management and Production. And he executive produced 
Curb Your Enthusiasm and the CW's Gilmore Girls. He also was famous for representing Larry David and founded the production company Pariah, producing TV series Revelations and Tell Me You Love Me for HBO, and films Drop Dead Gorgeous, Stir of Echoes, Premium Rush, and Panic Room, as well as Zombieland. This guy is opinionated and powerful. Please welcome Gavin Pallone. You know, I know it's it's just such a cliche, but the, the idea that youth is wasted on the young is so true. So now at 50, I look back on it and I go, what an asshole I was. And why couldn't I at least go, I wish I had a father or a Barry Katz who would say, hey, why are you enjoying this? You're so angry. Why are you so angry and dissatisfied? Let's look at your life for a second. Who gets to live your life? You know, such a small group of people. And... And that, that's really my biggest disappointment is, is in myself, in my own inability to get out of my own way and get out of my own head and say, hey, this is great. Why don't I enjoy it and be happy? Because, you know, I also kind of felt like a lot of what made me successful was this anger and rage that I had. I had so much rage. And it's not true. I could have been equally as successful and maybe more successful, but I would have enjoyed it. I would have been better to other people. And, and maybe certain opportunities that I had been given uh, wouldn't have been wasted because I would have been able to appreciate them. Have you made the switch? And if you have made the switch from asshole and unappreciative guy and angry guy to less angry and more appreciative and spiritual guy, was there a moment where the switch happened? There's a series of moments. I certainly, it's a progression of things where I had to go and look at myself and, and also just uh, there's you know a lot of different things that had happened, but it really all kind of came to pass in the years after I was fired. I got into another lawsuit with UTA over you know them feeling like I wasn't holding to the settlement agreement. My continuing to be uh, and then suing them and back and forth and that and that was very stressful at that particular point in time. And then you know I just again a couple different times like I mean there was this one moment where this was in I think 2006, so it wasn't even that long ago, but. Where I was, a, I played a lot of poker, and uh, you were in the World Series of Poker. Well, anybody can be in the World Series of Poker. Any idiot shows up with money, they can be in the World Series of Poker. But I was playing poker at a casino, and you know, I still had that kind of anger thing going. And uh, I think I, some guy had said something to me I didn't like, and I stood up and said, "Let's go out in the parking lot and fight," and or whatever. And I would do that a couple times, and they were going to throw me out of the casino. It was so there was a moment there where I kind of got outside myself and thought, "What?" this is ridiculous. You know, I mean, that's embarrassing. And I thought I got to get in control of this, you know? And, uh, I started just thinking more about my life, you know, that I thought I had gotten through that, but I really hadn't. And I think over since then, you know, in the, in the eight years or nine years since that moment, I, I really started thinking about me, thinking about what life means, thinking about what's important to me. I really have let go of any anger that I had that probably stemmed from my childhood. And I really wake up in the morning and think, I am so lucky to be able to do basically whatever I want to do. And I'm so lucky to be able to pass on associations or projects or business ventures or anything that I don't want to do and be able to continue forward with my relationship with Conan or my relationship with other people that I had represented over time and make, make the choice of doing exactly what I want to do. And very few people are allowed to do that in life. And I think, and I'm so lucky to be able to do that. And I'm, and you know, something that you even brought up, I mean, I 
maintain perspective and I gain perspective and I don't let go of it. So a really good friend of mine died a little under two years ago and of cancer. And he's such, he was such a good guy. And I, I, you know, in, he, I mean, he was a great father and everybody loved him. And, you know, then I look at me and I go, I'm in superior health and I continue on. And it just showed that to me that there is, I don't believe, you know, you said like that I'm spiritual. I'm not spiritual. Like I don't believe there's any plan. I don't think there's anything metaphysical out there. I feel like I've just have had uh, a lot of good fortune and why, cause it just, life isn't fair. Like why him? He's, everybody liked him. Why would he leave his, why would he have to die? And his, his, you know, kids are left without a father. And I think about that kind of stuff and it causes me to say, you know, I don't want to lose sight of being appreciative of that. And when I see, uh, you know, a news report about an accident or Ebola or something else, to me, it's the same way that like you, you, you gain some perspective from, you know, that disabled kid seeing that there's worse, there's kids that are more disabled. That doesn't mean I don't get frustrated in traffic, but it means that I stop myself and say, why don't I just zoom out a little bit and see what I have. My next guest you might recognize as a screenwriter, director, actor, and stand-up comedian. He's a veteran of the TV series Saturday Night Live where he assembled tremendous sketches and blew people away alongside Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, Mike Myers, and many others. He's gone on to a successful career in feature films, including starring roles in Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, The Hot Chick, and Grown Ups. Please welcome a guy who needs no introduction, Rob Schneider. I mean, I remember hearing about Chris Farley from Bob Odenkirk, who was a writer on Saturday Night Live, and God bless Bob for giving us all hope with his new his new show and how great he was in Breaking Bad, um, and now his own show, uh, Better Call Saul. Uh, is that he, he? He tell me, hey, this is great, hilarious guy. I mean, he, in Second City, he's going to end up here. He's going to come, probably come here next season. He's that funny, and it's. Uh, uh, his name's Chris Farley. He's not going to live that long, but man, he's fucking funny. And I, I remember getting a chill by him saying that because I don't, you know, you know, I didn't. I mean, I, I didn't uh, take that lightly. He meant it. I can knew he meant it. But I also felt like, well, that was very cold. But I also, he was accurate too. And I'm like, whoa, that seems to be like. Um, I just never heard anybody say that sentence before. First of all, it doesn't even. Ima- I can't imagine people passing away. It's not my. It's not in my DNA. I didn't grow up with that. I mean, I can't. It's not. It's not part of me. So no. I mean, but I. But I remember meeting him, and I tell you, I. I. Because I, I, I was checking in. There was a piece of shit hotel called the Omni Berkshire, which was a great location, but a shitty hotel at the time. It was just like a rundown place until the Sultan of Brunei bought it and fixed it up, and now it's nice. Sultan of Brunei has a way of doing that with his as well. <laughs> so anyway, this is bef- pre Sultan of, of Brunei. Other things too. Yeah, it was just on Fifty First. It was a shithole of a place, and and but it was very close to Thirty Rock. You know, really close to Saturday Night Live offices, and so this is. Uh, I was hired to do four shows with David Spade because we were told, we, you know, Lorne Michaels was told we were a writing team. That's how we both got hired, even though we had never written anything before, during, or since. And um, <laughs> that's how, uh, you know, uh, David got hired there uh, with me. And so um, I'm, I'm checking into this hotel in 1990, in like, you know, 
August or September for the following season of Saturday Night Live. I'm checking in. And I just arrived Saturday, and this guy next to me going, uh, I need a smoking room. I'm a smoker. I like to smoke. And I want to make sure that I got the smoking room so I don't get charged the extra 50 bucks. You know what I'm saying? But you got to check the name. And then I go, who is this asshole? And then he said, the name's Farley. Chris Farley, look up on your thingamajinger. It'll be in there. You'll see. They got a name for me. They called for me, and I'm sure you've got it. And I went like, wow, this guy's obnoxious. And then I said, hi, Chris. It's Rob Schneider. I'm going to be working with you this year because I'd heard of him. and I know he's going to be hired. And so I took him out that dinner. Says, you know, he's a, he was a, a boy, just a big pudgy boy from Wisconsin in the big city. And, you know, not like uh, that I was much more than that, but at least I'd been there a few months beforehand. So I, t- I took him out to his, a Mexican food, that place, Joe's, and that was on 53rd. 53rd and 9th or whatever. Joe's Mexican restaurant. Anyway, so we had some food. He said, you want a shot? He said, ah, just have a beer. He had 11 shots. <laughs> was By the end of the evening, he was on the table with his shirt off. And this wasn't famous Chris Farley. It was just a fat, naked guy with his shirt off, squeezing his nipples. And I'm like, at the same time, I was horrified. I've never gone back to that restaurant. And I think they closed shortly thereafter. I was also, as I was horrified, I was also thinking, this guy's fucking hilarious and doesn't give a fuck. But he's also was drunk and it was like crazy. It was slightly dangerous. and But at the same time, I'm laughing. And like there was other times in my experiences with him that we had that was similar to that dangerous and also really fucking funny and you shouldn't laugh at that stuff I mean he'd come in sometimes to work and he'd have 40 stitches on his elbow and I'd go what the fuck happened and he said oh, oh man I got an argument with the, with the lady and the next thing I know I put the elbow through the fucking window and I'm like I just you know when I argue with somebody I don't put my elbow through the window and have 40 stitches on my fucking arm so there was like a danger to him and that was just his thing you know but it never got truly truly dangerous until it got involved with with uh, with drugs and then it became you know critically dangerous my next guest is my first casting director that I ever interviewed, and she's a really special person. She is somebody who has been the casting director for everything from Two Broke Girls to the movie The Internship. And But the story she's about to tell of our first days as a casting director working with Steven Spielberg and how her experiences led her to the next level. She's a wonderful, wonderful person, and if you ever get a chance to meet her or as an actor get a chance to audition for her, uh, you should put that as one of the joys of your life. Julie Ashton. You know, I was working in, I worked at Chippendales. I was a cocktail waitress at Chippendales back in the 80s when it was like the big happening plays to supplement my income because I was getting paid $5 for my Fenton. But that was what I knew I wanted to do. I was working, I mean, with Mike, I had to work from, you know, 9 a.m. till 7 p.m. And then I'd go to work at, at Chippendales. At, we'd go in at like 10 or 11 after the shows because the shows were happening. They had all male waiters. I'm like a bustier in stockings. It was ridiculous. And I wasn't the big, you know, fake and everybody, all the other girls had some. But I had my loyal crowd that would come in and see me. But what happened at 11 o'clock, I did. I had my regulars. That I was, we had fun. But the point was at like 11 o'clock or 1030 after the show ended, it was ladies only and male waiters, right? But at 11 o'clock, they'd open the doors to a line. There was a line around the block of men waiting to get into the club because they knew there were all these horny women 
And they'd go and they'd let the men in. And that's when I came on. And I was the cocktail waitress then. And they got rid of all the men. And then all the dancers went around and did their thing, made their extra money with the girls. And oh, it was so gross. I can't even believe that I did it. But at the time, I had to do what I had to do because I'd come home with $500 a night at 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, we were open really late. And I lived in Cracktown. I'd have all the drug dealers hanging out on the street. They'd walk me to my to my apartment <laughs> on Argyle, North Argyle. They were they just had my back. They were really good guys. You have Rambo walk you home at four a.m. Okay. That's who you want yeah. walking you home when you're carrying five hundred bucks in cash. Anywho, the one thing I remember about Spielberg is that we were all so broke, and every single day he would invite us over. You know, he had a chef that would cook for everybody at Amblin breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and he would let us come over every single day. The chef was amazing. He would make us food and make us, you know, stuff to take home with us. And so we'd have dinner every night. I mean, he was just that guy, a family guy, took care of kids, really wanted to mentor all of us. He was just a, an amazing guy. My next guest has the distinction of creating Roseanne, working on The Cosby Show as his first job in the television business and creating the iconic show, Home Improvement. But the stories about to tell that have nothing to do with those shows. Please welcome a guy who is one of the most knowledgeable people about writing and creating television shows, and one of the most successful, Matt Williams. It's the key to why I've been successful in television. I, I promise you, this was the epiphany. This was the moment that changed my life. I was standing next to Bill. It was probably the, my second or third, third month on the job. I'm, I'm standing next to Bill Cosby at a run-through. And we're watching a scene between Rudy and Theo. And they're in there and they're doing a scene. And all of a sudden I feel this elbow in my ribs. And I look over and it's Bill. And he leans over and he's got his cigar and he goes, Hey man, if you were sitting at home right now, wouldn't you want to be a part of this family? And I went, there's the, there's his genius. That's the key to his success. From that point on, I always went, oh, we get to spend time with these people. We get to pull up a chair around Roseanne's kitchen table and listen to the stories. We get invited and they get invited in our house. And it's that notion of being part of this family. And I went, that's, that's his genius. Cause you really enjoyed hanging out at the Cosby house and that as opposed to Watch us be funny. We're coming at you with lots of jokes. Watch this. Because at the end of the day, jokes are wonderful. I appreciate joke writers. But at the end of the day, it's the characters. When you think about Mary Tyler Moore, you think about Ted Knight and Lou and Mary and Rhoda and Phyllis. You think, I don't know how many of jokes you can recall, but you know what those, who those characters were. You knew their point of view. My next guest is one of the most influential people in the business and a guy who's probably broken as many careers as somebody like Suzanne Daniels or Lorne Michaels, an incredible man who's worked at every level of the business and now is one of the head people and presidents at Comedy Central for original programming, a guy who has a great sense of humor, a great knowledge of the business, and a great understanding of what it takes to get people on the air who are talented and create hit shows, a man who I am honored that when I call him, he always picks up the phone and he'll always take a meeting. And a guy who just has so much respect in the business. Please welcome a guy who I actually interviewed here in Montreal Live a year ago, 
Kent Alterman. When I first started uh, in New York and I was in that design firm, we did you know a lot of fair amount of, of uh, movie marketing and one sheets. And there was a film called The Freshman, which with Marlon Brando and Matthew Broderick. It was shooting up in Toronto, and uh, our West Coast office was doing all the work. But something happened. I think the art director got sick or something. He couldn't make it to the photo shoot. And it was uh, uh, Greg Gorman, with big Hollywood photographer, was the photographer. And so they sent me up to kind of fill in for him. And I was really disconnected from the process. And um, so I was, you know, Marlon Brando, need I say more? And and I know I've always been someone who sort of treats people whether they work below me, sideways, above me, whether they're famous, not just as people. I think you know uh, that's the. I feel like the thing that unites us all is we're all humans with insecurities, and what makes us unique is that we express them in different ways. Uh, so I've always been good about not being intimidated. I might be intimidated by a situation, but not by people so much. But I really psyched myself out with Marlon Brando. And uh, I just, in the couple of days before, I started like rewatching all his old films. And I like, <laughs> it got so big in my head. So I flew up to Toronto the day before the shoot. I was so buzzed and nervous, I couldn't fall asleep. I laid in my hotel room bed and never came close to falling asleep. Went to set the next day. We have we start the day. Everyone's meeting each other, and right before we came, he had just done an interview with a reporter in a, for the, one of the Toronto newspapers, just throw, detonating a bomb on this movie about how the people, the director and producer, I think, were racist and this. I don't know some kind of controversy going on. It could not have been more tense. And we get in this circle around him, and they start showing him the comps that we were going to shoot the photography for. And it was a bunch of people, the producer, the director, him, Matthew, me, publicist from Columbia film studio. Anyway, there were so many people and he looks at it and he goes, Who, who's, who's responsible <laughs> for this? Who's in charge of this? And I thought, well, I'm the underling here. I'm not going to say anything. But no one said anything. <laughs> so I stepped forward and I said, uh, well, I'm not in charge of it, but I'm with the design firm. We came up with these concepts and, here, you know, and he starts asking me questions. Well, what was the intention with this one? And so I started having to answer his questions and he goes, okay. And then we had uh, a photo session and the only person that he showed any respect to was me. And I realized he was just testing everyone. Who's going to step up here? And uh, so we have this photo session, which was still pretty tense. And then he went back to shooting, and we finished other stuff we were doing. And when I was leaving, I was just walking out, and I kind of glanced over where they were shooting. And he looks at me, and he, go, he, he you know, motions me to come over. And I, I come over there, and he goes, I just want to thank you. And I said, oh, no, no, no. I want to thank you. And uh, he said, I'm just sorry I couldn't have been more help to you. And I go, you did fine. <laughs> so that was a pretty good holy shit moment. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of Industry Standard and our special second anniversary show entitled Holy Shit Moments. I realize after recording this, I can't just do one of these. 
there's too many great, great stories from some of the most extraordinary writer, producer, directors, musicians, comedians, all walks of life in the entertainment business that I'm going to go back in and bring you another episode next week that also has over 30 of these people and their greatest inspirational and holy shit moments. And I know you'll enjoy that, and so will I. So thank you again. I can't even tell you how unbelievably grateful I am for all your support and everything you've done all over the world to make this podcast what it is today. And I'm looking forward so very much to my third year. This is Barry Katz with another episode of Industry Standard. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car all the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.